0: Welcome to the Armani Talks podcast. I'm your host, Armani Talks. In this podcast, I'm helping you level up your communication skills. Today, we are here for Unapologetic Truths, episode 19 with Har Strongman, Life Math Money. How's it going? Everything is well. Episode 19. Time is going by.
1: Time is going by.
0: If you guys are listening from YouTube, be sure to drop that like on your way in. Let's get started with today's episode. How's everything been with you? Just came back from a hike?
1: Yeah, I was hiking for the past couple of days. Just got back yesterday. Everything in my body is sore. So I'm just relaxing, eating a lot to recover. And yeah, that's pretty much it, I think. What
0: about you? Doing well. I mean, just got a nice full body workout in. So I'm feeling energized and ready to go. You're doing the whole
1: Ramadan thing, right?
0: Yes. Yes. So this is the month for Ramadan. It's fasting. Um, It's not too different for me, Harsh, because normally I do a thing called intermittent fasting and I eat pretty late in the day. I found out that for me personally, if I'm eating too much before doing some sort of productivity sort of work, especially these podcast episodes, I feel tired. So for me, it hasn't been too much of a big deal. I just eat A couple of hours later, now.
2: Hmm.
1: So, what exactly is Ramadan? I know the only thing I know about Ramadan is that there's a fast, and the fast lasts like a couple of days. And a friend of mine who comes to the gym got kidney stones because he wasn't drinking water.
0: (laughs) So, what happens? What happens is um, you wake up in the morning, and that's when you eat a lot, and then at a certain point, you're done eating, and you can't even drink water. And you're fasted pretty much for the entire day until if there are starts. And if there is when the sun goes down, you break your fast. And that's when you could eat food, you could drink water, etc. cetera. And you pretty much do this for the month as a form of sacrifice and to show gratitude as well. Because normally in the traditional day, I mean, food is something that we may take for granted, where it's something that we expect. So in this month, when you don't have food for a certain period of time, even water, it gets you more grateful for the small things as well. So once Ramadan is done, that's when there's a holiday called Eid. And this is when a different family members, we all hang out. Um, we go to each other's house, eat food. And there's also a concept known as Eidi. Do you know what that is?
1: I do not. This is the first time I'm hearing about it.
0: So here's the funny thing, like growing up, when I was a little kid, whenever Ramadan would end, and we would have Eid, we had to, like the little kids, we went to the adults, and the adults would give us money known as Eidi, which was, hey, uh, congratulations for making it through Ramadan, and here's some money. So normally, little kids get money during Eid. But as you start to grow up, now little kids are asking you for money. How the
1: tables turn?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I forgot it was a couple of eats ago. I would say it's like three or four years ago. The little kids were coming to me for money. I was like, "What the hell? I'm considered an adult right now."
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, what do the kids do with the money?
0: So, I mean, they could do whatever with it. Um, It's like you have to. It's it's a form of respect. Right, uh, so kids they'll do a thing called salam. They'll you know touch your feet uh, as a form of respect, and then normally the adults give money. Uh, there was a couple of years ago when we did Eid in New York, and I recall my uncles and aunties giving me hundred dollar bills, a uh, twenty dollars. Like it's not a small amount of money. So especially like, for up, a
2: kid. <laughs>
0: exactly, as, as a kid, I'm like, man, I could buy uh, the new iPod with all this money. but you feel good, you feel good accepting the money if you did the fast. There was one year I did all of the fast for the month and that was just a big accomplishment. But nowadays, I mean, more people aim to do it for the entire month.
1: Wait, so is it optional or is it like a mandatory practice?
0: I mean, it's preferred that you do it, but I believe it is optional where I mean, there's a lot of adults that don't do all 30. They'll try to do it, but they don't do uh, all of them. You, you should join me for one.
1: No, Arman, I need the food. <laughs>
0: <laughs> have you ever tried intermittent fasting?
1: I have, but it didn't produce good results for me. I mean, it works. Like oh, So I have tried intermittent fasting and that works. I mean... The longer fasting, you know, where you don't eat for like two, three days at once. That didn't work at all for me. That made me Two, three days? Yeah. So there's a style of fasting where you like eat for five days and then you don't eat for two days. And that didn't work well at all for me. But intermittent fasting works really well for me.
0: Mm. So what's your span of eating throughout the day? Do you eat three meals a day?
1: It depends. So when I'm cutting... I will only eat two meals a day. So I'll have lunch and dinner. I don't eat breakfast. Breakfast is really the most unimportant meal of the day, especially if you're trying to like lose weight. So on a cut, I'll have lunch. I'll have like, say, 10 eggs and some whey protein. Then in the evening, I'll have some whey. And for dinner, I'll have, you know, whatever home food I'm having, roti and sabzi and everything like that. And while I'm bulking, I will have breakfast. And so I will also you, have a meal in the evening.
0: So you just said something that a lot of people are going to take as news, where you said breakfast is not the most important meal of the day, where there's a lot of marketing slogans growing up, where I used to hear that breakfast was the most important meal of the day. So when did you realize it wasn't that important? You've heard of a company called Kellogg's? Mm-hmm. The cereal company?
1: Yeah, the cereal company. They're the ones who came up with the whole concept of breakfast being the most important meal of the day. It was just a way to get people to buy their cereal. So it does it isn't like based in science or anything. In fact, there's a ton of science which shows that not eating breakfast actually improves your lifespan, improves your health. There's a ton of evidence for that. And basically, it's the word of Kellogg's versus the word of, you know, experience. <laughs> and. You know, if you're bulking, you have to have breakfast. Otherwise, it comes—it becomes really difficult to eat, like say, three thousand five hundred calories or something like that. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I can't speak for other people, but for me, I mean, ever since I decided to skip breakfast, I mean, I've had way more energy, and it's not just for breakfast. Harsh. I've noticed even before, let's say, emceeing an event for a public speaking event, I notice if I eat right before, I feel lethargic, but if I go there hungry. There's that primal instinct to, I wouldn't Dumb say perform, it. but speak. Where even with these podcasts, I mean, we're normally speaking in different time zones where you eat, then you do the podcast. Where for me, I'll do the podcast, then I'll eat. Mm. Don't you get tired? You... Sorry, don't go you ahead. Get tired? Don't you get tired when you eat and then you do this podcast? No, man. I don't eat garbage food. So.
1: What I eat is pretty healthy and nutritious. Usually Mm -hmm. something like whey protein with, you know, some roti or something with some sabzi.
0: Same for me, man. I mean, if I eat something healthy, I still don't feel good enough to speak for a long period of time. Maybe it's different body types.
1: Could be. In fact, there's a lot. There's some study to show that, you know, how well you respond to carbs kind of, is determined by how, what your ancestors were doing, like in the past few generations. So if your ancestors were, say, farmers, then your body will handle carbs really, really well. Versus if your ancestors were just sitting around, then they won't do well with carbs. And this means like the past few generations. Mm-hmm. So the whole carb debate might actually come down to what a, a few generations before you are doing with their life. So if they were just sitting around not doing anything, then your body won't respond well to eating carbs. But if your past, your grandfather, your father, your great-grandfather were, say, farmers, Mm
0: -hmm. then
1: your body will handle carbs really, really well.
0: What about protein shake? Do you digest those pretty easily or does it cause some problems for your skin?
1: I have zero problems with protein shake. I have four scoops a day.
0: Four scoops. I'm still waiting for that vegetarian guide on how to become a bodybuilder like you, man. Even though I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm pretty sure it'll it'll sell. It's really simple, okay. Train hard, and try to get 200 grams of
1: protein per day. And the way to do that is to eat a lot of eggs, a lot of egg whites, and a lot of paneer, low-fat paneer, and drink whey protein, a couple of scoops. If you're getting 200 grams of protein a day. And you're training hard, it's almost impossible to not gain muscle. Mm-hmm. Like, it's that simple. People overcomplicate it. And of course, you know, you have to sleep a bit extra. Like, you can't be sleeping five hours a day and eat enough calories. So, don't eat something like 1500 calories, which some people try to do, where they're trying to gain muscle while eating really little food. So, eat enough, eat a ton of protein. Sleep hard and train hard, and anyone can gain muscle. Unless you're vegan, that sucks.
0: <laughs> What's your take on those people that look down on sleep? They're like, I don't need no sleep. You sleep when you die.
2: Mm.
0: I mean, it's do like, you hear you know,
2: that? I.
1: It, it's a suboptimal path to life, you know? It's like when you're like chopping a tree, and you're chopping it with a blunt blade. I mean, you're going to get there eventually. <laughs> but you might as well just sharpen it. Sharpen your yeah. axe.
0: Because I hear different performers talk about different takes on sleep. I mean, have you ever heard of Cristiano Ronaldo?
1: He is the football player.
0: Yes. And I heard, I mean, don't quote me on this. I heard he sleeps around 13 hours a day. God, he does yeah. that. Yeah, he does one eight-hour, and then he takes a, a few naps throughout the day.
1: Hmm. Makes sense for someone who's running around so much. Yeah, I've heard actually different perspectives on this sleep thing. I think some people have this gene which allows them to only sleep for like six hours and still be very refreshed. Donald Trump comes to mind. Mm-hmm. But personally, for me, I need like eight, nine hours of sleep.
2: See,
0: I'm the opposite, man, where whenever I get eight hours, I wake up feeling so lethargic in the day. But if I get six to seven hours, I, I don't even need coffee. I have tons of energy.
2: Hmm.
1: Interesting.
0: You, you ever heard of The Rock?
1: This is the guy from Fast and Furious, right?
0: Yeah, the huge guy. Yeah. I heard, I heard that he sleeps four hours a day, or he did back in the days. Could be, yeah. and that was something that I found strange because I mean, this is a big dude. I thought a big part of muscle building was getting your sleep.
1: Just because he says something doesn't mean it's actually true.
0: Like mm. he might, he might just be saying. You, it, you think then. he sleeps in eight hours? <laughs> I don't
1: know. I don't know anything about the guy, so I yeah. not But it sounds a little unrealistic. Like at least to right. me.
0: Right. Oh, by the way, speaking of The Rock, so Rock is one of the... uh, We had a hilarious debate in our last episode, which was our entertainers clowns. And uh, The Rock is one of the uh, bigger entertainers in the world. And since we're in this field right now, uh, did you hear about the slap heard around the world? I know you don't care about it, but did you hear about that Will Smith slap?
1: Yes. Uh, Here's my take on it, okay? It's... Probably a staged thing, just to get people to pay attention, and everyone falling for it is an idiot because they're just promoting the show in a way for free
0: also oh, so you think it was fake
1: i am ninety nine percent sure it's fake it's it's probably just stage it's a stunt to get publicity because okay, so have- even a guy who like like me who doesn't care at all, I didn't even know who Will Smith was until recently. Heard about the Oscars because of the slap, so it's a publicity stunt that it's working, and like it, you know, there's proof it's working because we're talking about it here, right? And then people mm-hmm. will hear about it from us, etc. So it's working well for them.
0: I don't know if it's fake though, Harsh. Um, so I'll give you my take on why I don't think it's fake. Do you have any more like reason as though why you think it is fake? No, so. My thing is, I think we saw a mental breakdown happen in real time. And the thing is, you know, I've been reading his book. And since our last episode, I've finished his book. And I realized that this guy has been, I'm trying to put the words to it. He's been discovering. (laughs) Well, he views himself as a coward. Did we talk about that last time? The
1: only thing you mentioned about coward was that you find it very funny when someone calls someone
0: else a coward. Well, no, there was another part in the book where growing up, his dad used to hit his mom a lot. And there was this one time where the dad beat the mom so hard that she started to bleed from the mouth. And his two siblings went to protect the mom while he didn't do anything, Will Smith. And... Afterwards, his two younger siblings viewed him as a coward, and Will Smith viewed himself as a coward. And what happened was, in the book, he's saying that was one of the main reasons he wanted to become a superstar, and that's what started off his entire journey into rapping, acting, uh, doing comedy, etc. And I would say two years ago, I mean, like the whole like red table talk, like the cooking thing came out, um, and there were a lot of people piling on on his wife. And what happened with the whole, I mean, I made an in-depth video about this, like just the analysis of it <laughs> on my YouTube channel, but no, what I saw was like, if you're looking at the slap, one second he's laughing and then the sec, the next second, like his wife is rolling her eyes showing that she's agitated. And when he saw her body language move, my analysis is that there was that switch in him that was like, he wanted to protect his woman, just like his younger self wanted to protect his mom and that's when he just got up there and acted impulsively but if you read the book i'm telling you there's multiple parts where you could tell that emotionally this guy has a lot of demons in the closet and added to this i mean will smith and the rock i mean these are what i call general superstars in that acting industry where you pretty much have to put on this face that's not really you at times, where you're trying to appeal to a general audience. And I like to call that like the nice guy syndrome. And the thing with nice guys are that they'll be very calm for a certain period of time. And there's a certain thing that can make them snap. And I'm almost certain that that wasn't staged. I'm pretty sure that we saw a mental breakdown happening in real time. Could be. I haven't actually seen the
1: video. I've only heard about the incident and Seen a picture that's used on the memes. So I, it it might as well be real. It just seems so odd that. You know, if he actually slapped this guy. Why would they air it?
0: So it's a live show.
1: Oh, it's a live show. Oh, okay, okay.
0: It's a live show. And the thing is, I would have still believed that it was fake. If he didn't sit down and what he was yelling at Chris Rock. He's like keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth and a guy like that like will smith like the clean cut guy speaking like that i mean it just showed the the signs of a guy that's having a psychological breakdown and i mean this is on his biggest night i mean he's about to win an oscars i mean it doesn't make too much logical sense for me to be like this guy is going to act like this on the oscars i mean this is supposed to be the biggest night of his career And he's over here ruining his legacy. I mean, this is what people are going to remember him by. Unless, you know, he comes back and does some good work with the movies. And personally for me, have you ever heard of Dave Chappelle?
1: He's a black guy who makes police comedy. Yeah, I like his guy. I like his stuff.
0: Yeah. So in the US, I mean, he's unanimously seen as like the greatest comic of our generation. Yeah. I've always disagreed with that. I think Dave Chappelle is great, but I've always thought Chris Rock was way funnier than him and way more consistent and so chris rock like it's not like just an average nobody getting slapped i'm talking about a legendary comedian as well so i mean overall i, I do see the rationale from the people that say that you know it was staged uh, especially with all the fake news that's been going around these past couple of years mm-hmm. like, this is one of the rare few moments where i'm just like i don't know man i don't know if this one's fake
1: no one knows for sure but all I will say is that these guys are actors, you know. Like they 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 they're trained to fake things, like that's what they've done for their entire life. And their show, I'm assuming, is like declining in popularity. And what's one way to increase the popularity is to pull some kind of stunt. So mm-hmm. it could be a stunt. I don't know for sure. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> I'm like the last guy who's an expert in entertainment shows, but. I don't, I don't see why, like, it doesn't make any sense to, for at least to me, why would a guy slap another guy over a woman who cheated on him? Mm-hmm. That's dumb as rocks.
0: It is. I mean, the whole concept of cucking, I mean, it just, is it a new concept? I mean, has this been a thing of history?
1: It sort of has, but it was never like a a voluntary thing in the sense that if your wife cheated on you, then you would be, like people would say you got cucked, but nowadays the meaning is that you let your wife, like it's with your consent. So that is new, unless we're talking about Sparta, in which case it's a huge exception, but Spartans had legalized cuckoldry.
0: They legalized it?
1: Yeah, in fact they encouraged it. They wanted so their thought process was like so when you go out to buy a pet you try to like find the best breed the strongest one right? And if you uh-huh. have horses you want the best horse to breed with them with the female horses to produce good children good children. So that should also apply to humans. So they have this they had a very special process basically where once a kid was born a bunch of elders would inspect it you know for health and if the kid they thought was weak or it was crying too much, they would just kill the kid. Like they would just leave it at some place in the forest or throw it down a hill or something and kill it. Mm-hmm. So they were essentially artificially selecting for warriors. Like they wanted strong men who were physically strong for war. So they were phys- they, they were just doing that. They were killing kids who were weak. And they their culture would encourage men to let their wives, you know, be with men who were very strong. So they would let their wives like live with some other guy until she got pregnant, and then come back and raise the kid. So they had legalized cuckolding, and there was a time where you know there's another general from a different country, or state, or you know, or a city, who's asking the Spartan people that what is your punishment for adultery, and the answer was something like you have to carry like a buffalo or something, like a bull the size of a mountain across some road, and. And the guy who, you know, who's from a different outside country, he says, so where would you find a, bu- a bull that's the size of a mountain? And the guy replies, where would you find an adulterer in Sparta? Mm. So their culture was very different. Their culture was essentially meant to breed men and women who were physically very strong. And they they essentially encouraged men to let their wives, let, let, get cocked basically like they encouraged their men to let their wives have sex with this, the best of men in their country to produce good children in fact it was you know like their their women would essentially be naked and they were made to physically train with the men and this was done to keep them strong for childbirth.
0: How'd you learn so much about Sparta?
1: I read a book called Plutarch's Lives. I haven't read okay. all of it only the first volume, so I know the initial parts of Sparta so I know the I know a bit about Sparta from the times of Lycurgus when it was just being established, and you know Lycurgus was the guy who actually created the law of Sparta, and this guy dies in a foreign land, okay, and when he had left for a foreign land, he had told the Spartans that until I return, make sure you keep following my laws. So don't, don't change the law. Just mm-hmm. just keep doing what I told you.
0: I know what and, I'm doing.
1: Yeah, And then when he goes outside, he says, like, I, I think, I don't remember exactly, but I think he asked someone to kill him and says, throw my body in a river outside of the country. So he never returns, so the Spartans have to keep continuing his law. Mm. It's a very interesting country, Sparta. They, Sparta. They basically outlawed being rich. Like, they changed their currency to iron, which kind of meant that you couldn't be rich because storing iron takes a lot of space. And it, it was basically, it was very similar to what you could say a communist country-ish is today. Like, the kid would be raised by the state after, like, a certain age to be in the army. Like,
2: you would okay. not raise
1: your own kid. It would be raised by the state. And they, it it was it was a very different system, and yeah, they had this these things like they had completely different morals from what we had. For example, they would not feed the children properly, okay, and mm. they would give them little food so that the kid would have to steal food from the kitchen. But if the kid is caught, he he'll be punished. The mm. thing is that they were right. expecting the kids to steal the food, and. If you got caught, they would tell you that you're being punished, not because you stole the food, but because you got caught.
0: Oh, they're trying to instill that thinking faculty at a young age.
1: Yeah, and they would like make the kids like walk around without torches so that they are no longer afraid of the dark. And yeah, it was it was a very interesting country.
0: So what happened to Sparta? I mean, did they have a downfall?
1: Sort of. So, from what I understand, there's another city called Athens, and Athens is like the opposite of Sparta, where people are like rich and com- they have a lot of comfort, etc. So, what happened to Sparta was that all these generals of Sparta, as their empire expanded, you know, they would come in contact with Athens and they would become corrupted. They, they would they would like the comfort, the great lives these Athenians lived, and they lost their values of, you know, being a warrior. So Sparta won the war against Athens, but they lost culturally The Sparta fell.
0: Okay. So when I was um, in middle school, I had this teacher named Mr. Dowling, who gave me very brief understandings of world history. And he talked about Sparta and Athens. And he basically just summed it up as Spartans were the greater fighters and Athens, people from there were more educated. And that's all I knew about that sparta was essentially
1: made to fight there that was that was the purpose of the state but it wasn't an empire like it wasn't from what i understand it i'm not an expert at this but it wasn't like you know alexander the great kind of going across the world conquering the territory these guys had a vested interest in keeping things how it, they were because there were only a few spartans and they had all these slave cities like they had helots who would actually do the farming and every from time to time these helots would revolt so they were typically busy quelling the revolts etc and even when they had situations where they defeated all the men of a city and only the women were left in the city sometimes they wouldn't actually go and conquer the city because they didn't want to protect it like it was you know they didn't have the people or capacity or whatever reason So they would just come back.
0: Mm. So, okay. So do you think that was one of their reasons for their downfall? Because they were too warrior-driven and not enough education-driven and culturally-driven?
1: You could say that. The reason you could say... This is from the 48 Laws of Power, by the way. The reason of their downfall, according to that book, was that... You know, if you live your entire life sleeping on hard floor, training the entire day, and you come in contact with people who live extremely comfortable lives, very rich lives, okay? For example, let's say that you are a tribal, Arman, and you walk outside of your jungle and you see the modern world. Mm-hmm. How many of you, like, if you would you want, and let's say that you can communicate with the modern world, would you want to go back to your jungle with malaria and shit like that? Nah a lot of spartans or their generals kind of made the same choice not, not the initial ones but their children but their children and slowly it became more and more corrupted and then they essentially lost their culture and this is according to the 48 laws of power i haven't yet finished Ruth Archer's lives
0: is it a big book i'm thinking it's pretty big right
1: it is a pretty big book it's four volumes long and it's it's actually a little difficult to read because The book was a history book written 2,000 years ago. So 2,000 years ago, there was a historian. So This is a historian and he's writing about the events of say 2,500 years ago. So, you know, 500 years ago for his time. And he wrote it in his language, I think it's Greek. And then it was translated to English and the translations are not that great. So to read one page, it might actually take you like 10 minutes or something. To understand so if, what they're saying.
0: So it's a, it's pretty much old school English. It, it's not modern day English with the translation.
1: So the translation I'm reading is George Long translation. Um, Andrew something and George Long. Let me see. Let me actually pull it up. One second. Andrew Strubery and George Long, I think. I don't remember exactly. So This is the translation I'm reading. So it's, it's, some, it's somewhat semi-modern English.
0: Okay. Have you ever heard of William Shakespeare? I mean, have you ever read his works? I have actually read one play. See, I want to read his works again because the last time I read it, I was so young and the English that was used was giving me a headache. So I want to give him a chance because all writers are like, oh, if you haven't read William Shakespeare, then how do you even call yourself a writer? And I yeah, want to read it. It just gives me hey a headache. Sucks. It sucks?
1: Yeah, it sucks.
0: You don't like it? No. It's you don't really like slow, the English like, or the story?
1: The story. The, the stories are really simple and slow and kind of don't make any sense. For example, Love at First Sight. That's bullshit.
0: Was that the name of a book? Or the concept? Oh, you're talking about Romeo and Juliet
1: whatever it's across his plays all of these concepts sometimes that he talks about don't exist in the real world so yeah it's kind of like i don't i did not like the books that i've read that were produced by william shakespeare they come off as at least to me unrealistic and really really slow like for a play that's supposed to be entertaining that's a really slow and shitty play (laughs) but then again i'm not a man of culture so i don't know <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think from your uh, top 10 most controversial points from the unapologetic truths i wonder if that's in the top 10 because who knows who knows because to yeah. to say that william shakespeare is boring i mean in a certain cult group they'll be like oh my god like he, he's insulting our he's insulting our writing god i mean this is this is blasphemous Yeah, I don't know about writing
1: God. Is he actually known for his good writing? Or is he known for, you know, his historical stuff? Because from what I understand, when he was alive, he wasn't like very popular, even when he was alive. And he kind of got popular after he died.
0: Most artists are like that, from what I've noticed. They're not given their flowers when they're alive. But once they're dead, they're like, oh my God, like this guy was a genius. With with your first question, is William Shakespeare regarded as a great writer? I know that he's regarded as a great storyteller, and one of the reasons why he was regarded as a great storyteller was apparently because he knew how to share real human experiences in his stories, but you're saying your experience with him, that wasn't the case. You're saying his storytelling was a little too idealistic?
1: It was way too idealistic, and the characters were very one-sided, like, You know, people aren't like... You could not summarize someone's personality in two lines, right? But you could do that for Shakespeare's characters. Mm. Like, people behave in very predictable ways. They have, like, a basic concept behind a character. For example, there's a guy called Jax who's always sad. Like, he's always sad all the time. There's a guy called, you know, this person, I don't remember all these names now, um... Whatever the Man name is, thing. but he's always doing evil things. It's like, it's, it's not entertaining. It lacks depth. Hmm.
0: See, have you ever heard of Marshall McLuhan? I have not. So he was a media uh, theorist. Uh, he talked about what media was all about. And he, in one of his lectures, said that the initial definition for reading was, was actually called guessing. And when I first heard that, I was like, what are you talking about? Reading means guessing. I'm not guessing. I'm reading exactly what this guy wrote. But he was talking about how words evolve and how perceptions regarding words change. And one of the examples was stink. If I say, Harsh, you have a stink to you, and nowadays, you're going to be like, what are you talking about? I just put on the nice cologne as well. But if I said, Harsh, you have a nice stink to you 250 years ago, that was seen as a compliment. That meant you have a nice scent to you. So I wonder, since words have evolved so much, perception has evolved so much, that's why it's difficult for our generation to perceive William Shakespeare versus his generation, where they viewed him as this entertainment um, savant.
1: No, his generation didn't like him, right?
0: Well, this generation after him. The one that viewed him as this writing savant.
1: Yeah, but then the word-changing explanation doesn't make sense because his own generation, where the words would mean exactly what he was saying, didn't like him. Then so let's they say, didn't the like him at change.
2: All?
1: I don't know. I, from what I understand, he wasn't like very popular or anything back when he was alive.
2: Mm-hmm. Which
1: makes sense to me because his plays are not that good. <laughs> or maybe we're just used to better entertainment now,
0: right? Because I, I believe in his generation, he was planting a lot of the roots. I, I don't think they had uh, this big media landscape that we have nowadays. I think which brings me to a tweet of yours
1: for actually creating a lot of the English language. Like he came up with a lot of words. Like if he wanted a word, he just made it up. <laughs>
0: How about your father? Does your father enjoy Shakespeare?
1: My father has trouble reading English properly.
0: Oh, okay. Because I know my dad enjoys William Shakespeare a lot. And I know a lot of my friends, fathers and parents and even grandparents talk up William Shakespeare. So I wonder if it's also a generational thing.
1: It could be. Could be that they've only heard of Shakespeare It Mm -hmm. could be that since they grew up in a time before TV, they kind of found it more fun to read all these plays. Personally, I felt like the characters just lacked depth in Shakespeare's plays. They were too one-sided. They behaved in the same exact way all the time. And yeah, it was almost like, you know, you have these Disney characters where one person is evil, one person is good, and Stuff like that happening. It was a lot like that.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm It's good for children. I'm reading Bob Iger's autobiography right now. Do you know who that is? No. He was the CEO of Disney. And he's talking about a lot of the the behind-the-scenes stuff that went on in Disney. And there was a period where Disney was on top of the world, where after Walt Disney passed away, I mean, he left a lot of hits. And then they went, they were struggling. They didn't have much good content out. And that's when a guy named Michael Eisner came and he completely changed the whole Disney business as we know it. He added like hotels, cruise lines, more movies, books, et cetera. And then once again, it was going downhill. And Bob Iger talks about his whole journey and he talks about how important content is for a company like Disney. And he's talking about the different landscapes nowadays with Netflix, media, as a whole. And that brings me to one of your tweets, Harsh. It's a tweet on journalism where I mean journalists and entertainment. I mean the whole media landscape nowadays is way different than back in the days where the tweet of yours was imagine a journalist making $1,000 a month writing opinions and you quote this on multimillionaires. If someone did that in real life, you'd laugh them out of the room. On the internet, 30% of people a.k.a. midwits, will take their opinion seriously. How much do you think that journalism is becoming entertainment more than just delivering the truth nowadays?
1: All of it is entertainment nowadays, like all of it. Mm -hmm. See, think of it like this. What is the difference between a journalist and a blogger? Just the brand name, like they're all idiots.
0: (laughs) You think all journalists are idiots?
1: Look at the the guy who is actually a journalist. Think of it like this, the guy who is a journalist, usually these guys are super young, like they're like 17, 18, like 18 years old, they're interns, like a lot of these articles are written by interns and you can confirm that because if you click the, you know, if you you saw Huffington Post India, they had eight or nine actual people working there as employees and every single one of them, like they were producing like 10 articles per day Ten articles per day they were publishing on Huffington Post India per author. I think I think it was per author. Per author. Per author. Eight to ten articles per day, or it was some absurdly high number. Like you would have to produce one article every forty-five minutes. And from what I understand, the way to do it is they have all these interns who work. Like you know, if if you're in college, you want an internship, you can get an internship, and then you just write articles. And the guy who's an editor who works there will publish it under his name. So all of these articles are typically written by kids. And even the people who are working at these companies are not intelligent people. They're like people making like 500 bucks a month or something, like really, really low salaried people because they're not smart, they're idiots. And the content they're producing, you can pretty much tell it's written by morons. Like they have no idea what they're talking about. They're just saying things that they believe and acting as if it's true.
0: I wonder who their target audience is nowadays.
1: It's pretty much just a way to make, I'll tell you the business model, okay? Are you familiar with the AdSense ads? Yes. So every time you click on a, journal, a journalist site, like, you know, uh, say Huffington Post or CNN or whatever, you will see like five, six ads, right? Right. So every time you see an ad, the company makes money. So the business model is to write the most outrageous clickbaity stuff possible so that you will click. And when you click, you will see some ads and they'll make money. So the entire point of journalism is to create basically stupid, outrageous stuff that makes you question your sanity. And be like, how can someone be this stupid? Let me click this. And then you click it (laughs) and they make some money. Hmm. Like there was recently like an article I came across where there's a guy and he's talking about why Bitcoin is like a, it's like a religion and he, he his explanation is that this is a jesus coin and people buy bitcoin to get closer to god and what yeah it, it makes zero sense he had no he had no idea what bitcoin is and I, I proved it because i sent him like a he put it up on twitter and i replied to him i basically told him that i'll pay you a 1000 bucks right now if you can come on a live call with me and tell me what bitcoin is and how it works and how it's it's how is it a jesus coin And I know he doesn't know because a thousand bucks for this guy would be like two months of salary. (laughs) Did he respond? No, but he, the next day, posted a tweet asking like on Twitter, how do we know Bitcoin? There are only 21 million Bitcoin. Why can't they just make more? So someone asking this question shouldn't be posting opinions about Bitcoin.
0: Is he an opinion guy or is he an he actual is, tech journalist? He,
1: I think, is the head writer at that company.
0: Ah, that's that's an embarrassment. Yeah, it's a Big joke. All too? these
1: people are idiots.
0: Is it a well-known company?
1: Hmm. They have like half a million followers on Twitter. Let me let me see one sec.
0: Did you hear about CNN Plus recently? Heard any news about that?
1: I have not. Yeah, so this company is called Swarajya Mag. They have like 300,000 followers on Twitter. And the guy who is actually writing this article, is, his name is tashar He's senior editor or something, yeah. And his, he, was, he wrote an article that was on Bitcoin. Let me find it. Let me actually read it out and then maybe we can both share a laugh. <laughs> mm, Bitcoin.
0: I'm curious what he said because I, I'm not an expert on bitcoin by any means but I can spot BS from the quality stuff.
1: Okay, I'll I'll start reading his article from the beginning, okay? Cryptocurrency ban why Modi government will be right if it decides to go ahead with it, okay? So this guy wants crypto banned. And I'll re- I'll just read the first two three lines because I don't want our channel getting banned, you know, or hey, them just DMCing us. So transcending religion and rationality A group of cryptocurrency enthusiasts introduced a unique coin in the market. By definition, each offspring from the Bitcoin universe is meant to decentralize transactions using the blockchain. Further, creators believe that governments and central banks are Satan and in assuring imaginary currencies on the internet. They are being the saviors, the Batman to the the finance capital of Gotham. In reality, they are both the equivalent of the Joker, literally and metaphorically. And then it kind of like talks about the enthusiasts were on the spiritual side, wanted the blockchain to harbor the word of God. And by owning this coin in the name of the Lord, they wanted to democ-, democ- uh, what is this? Uh, he's made a spelling error. Uh, banking, financing, gaming. Insurance. So basically, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Like here, he says that the selling point of this currency was that it would bring you closer to God. Like the unique I mean, selling point of this currency was that using it would bring you bring one closer to God.
0: I mean, what is this guy? And is he it, is it Christian, it, that's a Jesus coin? Like, but, but is he a journalist or is he an opinion blogger? Oh Does no, it he's say a, that he's
1: a journalist. I think yeah, all I mean, of them like are the, and the, he says senior editor covering politics, economy, big tech, clean energy, and China.
0: Well, the lines that you read, I mean, a lot of it it, it doesn't seem like something that I take seriously because it sounds. Uh, It sounds 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 like something an intern would
1: write, right? It sounds like something an intern would write.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, nowadays, like this is the problem with modern journalism, where CNN Plus was released recently, where it's like a Netflix for CNN, from what I'm aware of. And I'm thinking, who are you guys exactly targeting? I mean, are you guys targeting a 50 to 60-year-old audience? Are you targeting kids or people our age? I mean, what exactly is going on? And more importantly, like, what's your guys' brand identity? Is this a news organization? Is it an entertainment organization? Or is it, is it like the WWF, where you got anchors being these entertaining personalities? I mean, what exactly is the identity? And this is going to be a big question that they need to answer, especially as new media is ramping up. You got to understand, like, who you are so you can at least understand, okay, this is the type of audience that I want versus what I don't want. The problem nowadays is that they're just like, okay, well, if it gets clicks, that means we're on the right uh, road. But that's exactly opposite of their brand identity from what they want, at least. They want to be known as the trusted news organization. Then if you're just going for clicks, you're going to tarnish your brand in no time.
1: Yeah, I think they know all of this. It's just not profitable to actually be a news organization. And at the end of the day, they have to make money. So they just resort to producing whatever gets most clicks.
0: Because I was reading Ted Turner's autobiography, amazing autobiography, highly underrated. Not many people know about it. It's called Call Me Ted. You guys should definitely check it out. And he was the founder of CNN. It was his idea. And initially, when he's talking about his idea of starting a news organization, he had a noble intent. I mean, he wasn't thinking about the money part too much. He wanted this one area where you could get 24-7 news on demand of quality journalism. I'm talking about reporting on words from overseas to the financial system, learning a whole bunch of stuff that you couldn't learn elsewhere because this was before internet was becoming mainstream. And seeing what his intent was and in the beginning of CNN to what it is now, it's 180 opposite. And I think he has interviews nowadays, Harsh, where he just sat. He's like, this is not what I wanted from CNN. And it's unfortunate that it turned out this way.
1: Hmm. Well, I think that these companies are on their way out. Like, they're dying. Because their power came from the fact that people trusted them. So back in the thousands, let's say, 1995, if CNN said something, people would believe them. Or any news organization they had authority, and if they said something, people would take it as truth. But now people don't care. Like, like, with the exception of, say, older people, younger people don't... They, they think that if CNN says something, it's probably some kind of agenda behind it, some leftist agenda, and they don't trust it. So as a company, as a business, they're losing power. It's a lot right. like what happened to, say, Christianity where people just stopped believing in the Bible. like A lot of it was proven wrong, right? That the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, the earth revolves around the sun, and evolution was a big thing. And then people just lost faith in the Bible. So uh, it's, it's kind of similar to that. People no longer trust these organizations for good reason, because they lie all the time. In fact, nowadays, they are primarily lying and producing news every once in a while. So... <laughs> They are essentially on the way out. Like Pretty soon, the trust in them will go to zero.
0: So here's what I see happening with them. Either they go bankrupt or they'll do what Disney did. So back to what Bob Iger, uh, the CEO of Disney, did. I mean, Disney, I would say in 2005, 2007-ish, it wasn't producing hits like it once did. And it was seen as on its way out. It was seen as this old, uh, traditional sort of way of doing things. And the new kid in the block was called Pixar. Have you ever heard of Pixar by any chance?
1: Yes. They were owned by Apple, right?
0: Well, they were owned by, uh, Steve Jobs was the CEO. So he was the founder of Apple, but I I wouldn't say they were owned by Apple. Okay. So Pixar was making hit after hit after hit. And they they were about to become the dominant one. And what Bob Iger did was he went to Steve Jobs and he was like, how about Disney buys you guys out? And Steve Jobs at that time was stressed because he was running Apple and Pixar. And he was like, you know, that wouldn't be too bad of an idea. So Bob Iger was able to save Disney by buying Pixar. And then after that, he bought Marvel Studios. So Spider Man, uh, X Men, that series, all under the Marvel Universe. So now Marvel and Pixar are making Disney relevant and they have more arm power that way. So I wonder if CNN is going to buy out someone that. People trust, and I wonder if that's how they're going to revamp their brand again.
1: Hmm. I don't think that that that'll work out. I'll tell you why. Okay. For mm-hmm. things like making movies, there's a huge entry barrier. You need a big budget, production budget. You need a lot of employees to do the editing. You need you need a lot of different talented people to come together and a lot of capital to actually create a movie. Versus, anyone can be a journalist. Like you have these people on Twitter who go from place to place, and actually cover live news from their camera, right? Have you seen them?
0: Yeah, are they called gorilla journalists? Isn't there a phrase for Citizen
1: them? Citizen journalists, gorilla journalists. Yeah. So, people will. The way I think this industry will go is that people will not trust these big corporate houses anymore because they, there is like only an idiot to trust them. Like, like at this point, if you trust mainstream news, you're you're an idiot, like bona fide idiot. So what would happen is that this would become more like an influencer model type stuff where people will have independent credibility. Like there will be people who do journalism and they would go to place to place. They will cover the stories and they would put their own spin on it or whatever. But they would have their own credibility and their own reputation on the line. So if, say, some guy fakes a story and it becomes known, then people will trust them less, etc., so it would not be this one big central organization who kind of gatekeeps what news comes out, because we're no longer in the world where, you know, you need a TV channel to make news. Anyone can make news now. There is no difference between CNN and a guy who starts a blog. You can both publish the same articles.
0: That's true. There's actually, I know you're a big fan of hardcore history now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy, uh, the what's his name, Dan Carlin. Yes. He had this TED Talk, I think around 2014, 2015, which is pretty much breaking down everything that you're saying right now, where he's saying that nowadays, a solo person can have more influence than this big corporation, more specifically media corporations. And what you're saying makes a lot of sense with me, because I know this one girl who worked in CNN and MSNBC, and recently, I believe she quit, and she started to make these TikTok videos and started to write articles on Medium. And she went viral on TikTok. She has 170,000 followers, which I guess with TikTok isn't even that much. because There are people getting millions. But she's able to funnel those people into our articles. And nowadays, she gets to choose what type of content she wants to uh, talk about, where every now and then she talks about her experience in CNN, MSNBC, and talks about the whole editorial process, how you create content, and then the editor has to approve it. But now she's more bossed up where she gets to be in more charge. The good thing about that is you have more charge. The bad thing about that is as the news scales, as it becomes more important, don't you think sometimes personal biases can get in the way?
1: I think everyone will have their biases. The thing is that when individuals produce news, you can, let's say that you think someone is biased. Well, there are 500 other people who are producing, covering the same story. So you can get a lot of different perspectives versus one big organization or two big organizations and they're colluding together to produce a story and then you only get what they want to tell you. Mm. Essentially what happened to Trump, right? Anytime he did something, all of these news people would just pile on him and like just give you like Trump is bad, Trump evil perspective. Which was very suspicious to most people. Like, if you were an idiot, then you would believe it. But if you were like, if you had like even double digit IQ, how can one person be that crazy? You know that doesn't make any sense. How can someone be that crazy and win an election? That doesn't that doesn't add up, right? How can any everything he does be wrong? Mm -hmm. So, a lot of people realize that a lot of news is fake. And Trump kind of like popularized the term fake news.
0: He did. But in
1: a world without, say, in a world with citizen journalists, let's say hundreds of people are individual journalists, everyone will have biases, but you will get so many different viewpoints that the opinion you might end up forming would be closer to truth than it is now. And moreover, if someone is caught lying, then their credibility would go down. It would be a lot like, you know, if there's a guy in the street and he keeps screaming, there's a fire, fire, fire. Okay, so one time, the first time you might run away, like, you know, you might believe him and run from your shop or whatever and, you know, try to call the firefighting people. But if he's doing it every day, then at some point you'll just ignore him. Like, you'll assume he's lying. So people's credibility can go up and down and it's better if... We had it was more decentralized
0: do you see centralization completely melting away?
1: No, not completely, but it it's going to become much less in ten years than it is today.
0: One of the main times I could see a need for centralization is with weather news, where for Florida, we get a lot of hurricanes, and that was like the, the only main time that I watched the news when an hurricane is coming and did you ever hear about Hurricane Irma? No. It was this Category 5 hurricane. And I was watching the news then. And it looked so freaking scary harsh. Where it was way bigger than Florida. And everyone was at the highway at this point. So we couldn't even leave. Because then we'd be stuck on the highways. So it was a, it was my brother, my roommate. And a few people were like, Alright, well, I guess we're going to stay. And we're hearing these terrifying news about how people who are going to stay are going to drown alive or they're going to have to you know, stay on their ceiling or something like that. We're hearing all these strange news. And this was the one time where I'm like, all right, is CNN going to help me out with anything? Are they going to give me some good news? But they didn't give me good news either. It's just the only time I could see a need for centralization is when some sort of global crisis like a hurricane like some weather crisis coming in because i wonder if they have more resources
1: let me give you a real scenario what was your thoughts on the news that was being produced in the time of covid do you think it was real i'm not talking about covid but the whole scare they were like making out
0: no I, i mean well for me i mean do you mean, do I think it was real in terms of how they were trying to scare people or yeah. if COVID is real? I like thought it was...
1: The, the, guy, the, the guy from the White House, I think he said that it's going to be a winter of death and destruction for the unvaccinated.
0: Oh, that sort of stuff, man. I mean, I, I never take them seriously when they say that. I mean, I do take COVID seriously. I mean, I do know people that had it. Yeah, but when but they start to use those th- sort of language... As bad it was
1: nearly as bad as it was being portrayed by the media, right? Right, right. right.
0: That's what I'm saying. They amped it up.
1: Because they were essentially doing what you said. They were trying to centralize it, you know, only promote credible information. If you said something they didn't like or they disagreed with or wasn't the common wisdom on vaccines or COVID in general, you would get your Twitter account suspended.
0: Well, Harsh, let me tell you about the, the whole Irma thing. This is the finishing touches to it. This is when I lost so much trust in the media. So we're thinking that, you know, we're gonna get wiped out, our house is gonna blow get blown away. I mean, these Mm -hmm. are the kind of news we're getting. And then what happens is that I think it was either Anderson Cooper or Cuomo who are in downtown Tampa, and they're over here being so freaking dramatic. They're getting rained on, and they're like, Oh my, like the winds are so freaking strong. The gust of winds are hitting my face. This is a hurricane that you never want to be involved in. And The place that they're at, it's literally 15 minutes away from where I am, maybe even 10 minutes. And I step outside my door, (laughs) and there's no winds at all. I'm like, look at these guys, man. They're over here hyping this stuff up. They're being so dramatic. But it's not that bad from where we're at because it's only a 10-minute distance. And that night, I mean, Hurricane Irma wasn't as bad as the media made it out to be. I mean, there were certain houses that got hit hard, but the whole like, you know, you're going to drown. You're going to have to like be on top of the roof. I mean, granted, I was happy that they got me somewhat scared because it made me take extra precautions, but there was another side of me that was just like, were we just a ratings grab? I mean, what, because this was big news in what, 2017. I mean, this was, this was very big news. So I wonder if we were just a ratings grab. So after that, I was just like, man, screw the media, bro. Or screw the, all these fear-mongering that goes on.
1: There is no crisis that is as bad as the media portrays it to be.
0: There was this Greek philosopher, or I don't know what he was, but he was talking about it where he says, rather than saying, staying so upgraded with the media, read more books. And someone challenged them. They're like, well, if I don't watch the media, then I'm going to be uninformed and I won't know how to tackle everything that's going on around me. He's like, you idiot. If you keep watching the media, you're going to be misinformed and you're not going to have the logical capabilities to handle anything. But if you read books, you're going to be much more lethal in how to carry yourself. What's your take on that?
1: I agree with it. I don't watch any tv media anything right i don't even watch the news and pretty much the only news i get is from memes and so far i haven't missed out on anything important
0: do you do you ever watch mainstream media or, or like with your parents or anything like that
1: not really unless i'm sick when i get sick i will typically like do things just to make time go faster
0: so that's like once year or something yeah, the only time I watch it is to study psychology. I look at facial expressions, see how they move. But I don't say like, oh, this is what I'm going to ride or die by. I have a friend who you know, bought all these streaming services for uh, New York Times, MSNBC, Fox, and he he gets all of his information from that.
1: I see. So how is his life going? <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's a good guy, man. He has a good heart, but I mean, he's always just agitated about something. Every time I see him, he's just pissed off about something. He doesn't see much opportunities around him. And this is a guy who's, who I've known since freshman year in college. So since 2009 and in 2009, he had this light in his eyes where he was enthusiastic he was ready to tackle life and nowadays he's just bitter all the time so his spirit is taken away you should introduce
1: him to life math money
0: i'm going to i'm gonna be like yo man you gotta check out life math money you should have a life, <laughs> life math money plus
1: nah <laughs>
0: <laughs> like a life math money streaming work. service
1: <laughs> have you heard of something called pew news
0: Was it called pew News?
1: Yeah, Pew News. Uh uh-uh. uh, it's a it's a news thing by P- PewDiePie, the guy from YouTube.
0: Okay, I know uh, PewDiePie. I, d- I didn't know he made a news channel.
1: Yeah, so the, the, I don't know if he, if it. I I have never actually watched any PewDiePie show, but he has some segment called Pew News, and there was this meme that was floating around, which had stuff like, CNN has like 1.1 million viewers, Fox News has 1.5 million total viewers. MSNBC has like 2 million total viewers versus Pew News has like 9 million total viewers.
0: That's insane.
1: Yeah, his average, the average Pew News video apparently gets a ton of views. So it's already happening. Like the only reason Uh these guys are still around is that all these algorithms for YouTube kind of artificially promote these quote unquote authoritative sources. But if that wasn't the case, if it was fair competition, these guys would go down to zero real fast.
0: Mm-hmm. And they're mandatory in a lot of airports. I mean, I don't want to just badmouth the media, but it just—it's at this point right now where it's become ridiculous. Where, I mean, they honestly remind me of world wrestling entertainment right now.
1: <laughs> but yeah, but wrestling is fun to watch, from what I know. Versus <laughs> these guys just make you crazy.
0: There's this, um, hold on, I'm Googling the name of the book. i read it recently, but it's a complicated name. So it's called Sex, Lies, and Headlocks, the real story of Vince McMahon. Oh, Do you who? know Vince McMahon? Vince
1: McMahon. Uh, so, this is the guy who owns WWE, right?
0: Yes. And Sex, Lies, and Headlocks, it talks about the uprising of world wrestling entertainment, where before, back in the days, Harsh, it was something that was more local. Like you go to your local place and you get a wrestling match and that was considered big. But what made Vince McMahon special was that he turned it into a global sport. So no longer was everything fragmented. He unified it and made it global. And you just understand how his mindset works, where he understood that there was a craft to wrestling, but he realized it was more so entertainment. You got to get to people's emotions you got to make them feel a certain type of way and if, if you read the book what the mainstream media does makes so much more sense i mean it's honestly the same exact playbook
1: yeah it reminds like, you of the whole will smith incident a bit doesn't it arman
0: um, how so
1: where you try to make people feel a certain thing so that they pay attention
0: yeah, no, I mean it definitely does. Where you're talking about, you know, getting people riled up and getting them in the moment. Where that's why I said I see your case for that. Yet I don't think that was one of those cases. Harsh.
1: I remember reading a book. It's called "To Be the Man" by Ric Flair, mm-hmm. and it was detailing the, the how this guy started working for WWE. So before WWE, there was another organization. I think it was called WWF or something.
0: Yeah, so they were called WWF before, but they had to change it.
1: Or so there was some a, other company, and Vince McMohan WCW. Kind of, yeah, it's WCW, I think. And yes. Vince, McMahon, Vince McMahon, I think he kind of bankrupted the other guy because he was way better to deal with.
0: Mm-hmm. So what happened was for a while, like WWF was creme de la creme. And then WCW came out of nowhere. And the guy that was funding that was Ted Turner, the guy who created CNN. And he was a billionaire at this point. So WCW had way more resources. And for months, Harsh, I, I recall this because this was a part of my childhood. WCW was whooping WWF in ratings. For months, I probably even for years. But the only thing with WCW was that they didn't focus on the money enough. They they were just letting the stars spend whatever money they wanted to. And eventually that caught up with them. While Vince was highly focused, he knew about the creative side of the business along with the money side. So in the long run, they were able to last. And eventually, WWF bought out WCW and attained all of their stars. Hmm. But here's the thing, Harsh. The reason initially I bought up the book was because when Vince McMahon was making wrestling big, there were two types of wrestlers. One type was known as like the the wrestlers. I mean, they took the whole craft of wrestling highly seriously, while the other side was for predominantly for entertainment. Like these people knew how to get the crowd involved. And Vince wanted to merge them. He wanted wrestlers to be able to entertain as well. But as more time started to go on by, he started to lean more and more towards entertainment. And the people who are just pure wrestlers didn't feel like they were being respected. Where nowadays, in terms of the mainstream media, I'm certain there are tons of journalists who respect the craft of journal- journalism, who you know understand the basics, the fundamentals of what it's like for journalism in democracy. But then there's the other side that's like, oh, no, man, you got to entertain. You got to get these people involved. And nowadays, they're skewing more towards the entertainment rather than the journalism. Where, where you said it, I mean, with wrestling, that may work. But with news, I mean, that's not going to work. Like You got to lead with the truth and then sprinkle in entertainment rather than leading with entertainment and sprinkling in the truth.
1: I think you're very optimistic. How so? I think since the beginning, the whole industry of journalism was about making money. It was never about honestly producing news. Or it hasn't been for a very long time. In fact, there's a guy called Mike Cernovich and he made a documentary called Hoaxed. I highly recommend watching that documentary. Journalism has been fake from... For a very, very long time. It's only that people are realizing it now.
2: Do you think there's
0: any quality journalists within mainstream media that's not getting enough love?
1: I don't know. I would be surprised if there were a lot of them. Like There are exceptions for everything. So there's probably at least one. But... (laughs) They are a huge minority. And I would say that any quality person would not work for 500 or 1000 bucks a month for these corporations, writing articles telling you how Bitcoin is Jesus' coin. Like, that is not something an intelligent person would do. So they're all idiots. (laughs) Now, look at the average salary of a journalist. In fact, you could have a conversation. I can, like, you can, I can actually prove it to you that most journalists are idiots, okay? Go to any journalism school, okay? And ask the student there that what are you trying to do as a journalist? And he will tell you, I want to change the world. His job is to just stand and report what is going on, not change the world. When he says he wants to change the world, he basically is saying that he wants to add some kind of narrative to change people's interpretation of things. That's what he's saying.
0: Don't you think reporting on the news can change the world?
1: Reporting news can change the world. But when this guy, when these people say that they're trying to change the world, what they're trying to say is that they want to add a narrative to whatever news they're producing to influence people's opinions and make them act in a certain way. Hmm. And I see what that's you're not their job. Their job is to stand on the side, take out a paper and pen, and write down what's going on factually.
0: There's a guy named, let me make sure I pronounce his last name right Matt Tybee, Taibbi, T A I B B I. Oh, I read I his don't know,
2: book.
1: Um,
0: oh, what's his on book? On drug dealing. Good book. Did, did you like it?
1: Yeah, Business okay. Secrets of Drug Dealing. Good book.
0: So, with him, I mean, I was recently discovered uh, or recently found him out. And, you know, as I've been going through some of his stuff, he talks a lot about the media. I think he's a journalist, right, Harsh? Yeah, what he is, is he exactly? He's an
1: independent journalist, I think. He's like the guys I'm talking about.
0: He has a substack. He, lo- he logically breaks down what's going on with the media right now. And he was talking about this one point where he said, before, you either did news or you did opinion. And these are two lingos that you get into in terms of mainstream media. And nowadays, it's like both people do the same exact thing. So it's difficult to distinguish where I would say 10, 20 years ago, I mean, it was a clear distinction. Nowadays, the distinction isn't there. And he said that was one of the main reasons that we're struggling to see what is true and what's not nowadays. So what was the name of the book you said? I'll include it in the description box.
1: Business secrets of drug dealing. Drug dealing. Let me let me actually find his Substack. He's a pretty cool guy, from what I can tell.
0: You read some of the most random books out there. Let me <laughs> just throw that out there. <laughs> you read a book about a guy climbing Mount Everest. Something about drug dealing. What's his name? Plutarch's Life.
1: Pl- Plutarch's just, Life is a very good, very very good book.
0: Do you just read whatever you're curious about? Pretty much. For Poudar's
1: life, I kind of found it from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography.
0: Did you read the? Did you ever read the auto or the biography written by Walter Isaacson?
1: I don't know who that is. No.
0: So Walter Isaacson, he writes some of these amazing biographies. He wrote one for Steve Jobs. That's the one I read. I bought the one for Benjamin Franklin. And he also wrote one for Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, these are big books, but if you spend time on it, you'll know these people inside and out. Hmm. Business secrets of drug dealing. Is, is there something you want to tell us, Harsh?
2: If
1: you're going to do it, <laughs> charge high prices. I remember some of the lessons actually well, it, it's actually a very interesting book. For example, if you are carrying a lot of drugs in the back of your car, they would like n- send three cars instead of just one car. Or I think they would send four cars. And the first car is just to check if there's any pullers on the road. The second car is supposed to like, be some kind of distraction. And the third car is supposed to actually have the drugs. I don't remember exactly why the four-car formation existed, but it was something like this. And the guy says that you should not actually carry a gun, but you should have people who can shoot for you. Because if you get busted with a gun, the sentence is much higher.
0: I always found it unique that these drug cartels, companies, they have similar processes to legitimate businesses.
1: Well, they are businesses in the sense that the only reason these businesses are very violent is because they're illegal. So what what would happen is let's say Arman, I sell you a bunch of cocaine and you don't pay me. Like you said, go fuck yourself, Arsh, I'm not paying you anything. Mm-hmm. So you have my cocaine, but you're not gonna pay me. So if it was legal, I could go to the police and say, <laughs> Hey, I gave this guy cocaine, he's not paying me. Get me some money, like arrest him, yeah. make him pay right but because it's illegal i can't go to anyone so i have to either carry a gun or have people who can actually enforce these rules and like actually go say someone goes and kills you and takes money from you or takes revenge that happens
0: a lot where the people who bought the drugs will steal it from you or they won't pay i mean that's how breaking bad i mean you see that behind the scenes look into that
1: so yeah so it's like because it's illegal you have to have your own muscle and enforcement and your own capability of violence to enforce business decisions it kind of teaches you the importance of a country that has working law and order because every business would be just as violent as the drug business if there was no police well
0: what's also cool about the mafia is that when you look at them, you can't tell that they're in the drug game. A lot of them are suited up, hair combed. I mean, they look like polished people. You ever seen it Goodfellas?
1: on which mafia we're talking about. It depends.
0: You, you ever seen the movie Goodfellas? No. You've seen Godfather, right? Yeah. It's one of those scenarios where Italian mobsters, they've always intrigued me and the Colombian drug dealers. I still need to watch Narcos. Did you hear about that show? No. I hear about it a lot where it's about Pablo Escobar, who was this famous drug dealer. And there was this chart recently of some of the wealthiest drug dealers of all time. And they were individually going from the smallest to the highest. And it was crazy because they saved Pablo Escobar for last. And his amount of money made throughout his career dwarfed all these other drug dealers which gives you insight into how big this guy was
1: Pablo Escobar was a really interesting guy check out this book it's called The Accountant's Story it's written by his brother Roberto Escobar and it's a complete account of how they got started in the drug business and how Pablo Escobar grew it because Roberto was his accountant oh, I think that guy account- still alive
0: let me see uh, roberto roberto yeah what about pablo when did he die pablo got
1: killed at the end he got killed roberto he got blown up but he didn't die so someone sent him a letter bomb and when he opened the letter it blew up in his face and blinded him so he's blind but he still survived yeah so he's still alive he's 75 years old
0: oh okay That must be a good book. I'm down to check it out. It's a
1: good book. It's a very good book.
0: A lot of the times, Harsh, I mean, these gangsters, they're vilified because obviously they're selling drugs. But in certain parts of their community, they're viewed as deities. Where Al Capone, he was known to apparently buy food for his community, help a lot of the poor people out, and just help with the money. So it puts the person in a, a strange situation. It's like, this guy's a drug dealer, but this guy also looks out for his community. How do we view this guy?
1: Um, they are like, pe- these guys are smart. They're using the populace, the, the people, as a hedge fund.
0: Mm, so, so they're not traced?
1: No. Basically, if I steal, say, if I rob a bank and I steal $100 from the bank, and I'll go and distribute $20 to the people, so the people will like me, and I'm hoping that the people will like me enough that they will like, they will oppose the, sh- the police from arresting me, even though I ended up keeping most of the money for myself.
0: Oh, you're saying they're strategically creating this Robin Hood like narrative.
1: Yes, they're using the people as a hedge fund.
0: Hmm, I can see that.
1: Because for them, it's, it's actually not a good idea to be publicly hated. They don't want to become terrorists.
0: That's true. That's true. Anytime someone's of power, I mean, one of the first perceptions may be that they're automatically trying to become a dictator, but notice what a lot of these people in power do. They try to win over the media or they just blatantly control the media so they can spread narratives of how they're the man. So it's much less likely for them to get overthrown.
1: Yeah, it's a game.
0: I'm curious about this. I want to look more into these mob stories i want to see how the psychology of these guys work
1: start with this book it's a very good book the, the accountant story the accountant's story yes okay, i picked it up them. because well i felt you know i'm an account i used to be an accountant right i'm a chartered accountant and no one writes books about accountants so that was pretty interesting so i picked it up it was surprisingly good
0: I think that's one part of your life I don't know too much about. I don't know if your audience members know much about it, but how was it like being an accountant?
1: Well, it was fine. I, I did my child accountant. I did a complete degree in accounting. I am a child accountant by education. And there was a three year period where I was an intern because that's a mandatory part of the education. And For how long? It was three years oh, from wow. 18 to 20. 21. Did you
0: work for? Did you work forty hours a week?
1: Yeah, more for than three years.
0: While than. while going to, while going to college?
1: Oh, we don't have college. It's a distance education type thing. You get your books. Oh, okay. You have to go and give an exam at the end of the three years.
0: So those three years were pretty much like a job for you.
1: Yeah, but it, it didn't pay well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got paid like a hundred bucks a month or something.
0: Did anyone talk down on you? Like, yo, intern, intern give, me the, uh, give me some coffee.
1: Nah, not really. I didn't work that hard.
0: So what was your experience like? I mean, did you do networking or were you just one of those people that are like, all right, I'm going to be out of here soon? I typically did not like it. I didn't like
1: getting orders from people. It didn't, set, it didn't sit well with me. Mm-hmm. So after I did got you... done with the whole education thing, I started my own business.
0: Did you have to wear a uniform?
1: No, but you had to wear formals. And you had to wear a tie, which I hated so much. <laughs> it's like a dog collar.
0: And you had to work, work certain hours too, right? Do you guys do nine to five there?
1: We do nine With to different nine time zone.
0: Nine to nine? Yeah. How many days of the week? Six. Six?
1: It's supposed to be five, but you end up working six.
0: That's sixty hours a week, not a forty-hour a week job. Or no, that's even more than that. Nine to nine is twelve hours.
1: Yeah, it's it's a lot of hours. Like some some months, you would like work from nine to twelve.
0: But but that's not what you were initially hired for, right? You weren't hired in to India. work seventy-two hours.
1: No, it's different in India. In India, you you're just hired. You're not hired to work X hours. You're hired, and now they own
0: you. And they don't give you overtime. No. So for my career, when I was an intern, what happened was we got hired for 40 hours a week. And anytime we worked overtime, then we got the overtime pay. So personally, for me, I loved working overtime because let's say I was making $27 an hour. Overtime pay was 1.5 times that. So what's that? Um, That's $40 an hour. So younger me, I was like, yo, man, uh, sign me up for as much overtime as you can. Because a lot of the older workers, they hated overtime. And they were on salary, so it didn't really matter for them either. But since I was an intern, your boy got the overtime pay. I was (laughs) making a lot of money. So, Well, Arman, in two and a half hours
1: of working overtime, you made more than I made in a month back then.
0: Really? Yeah. What? They didn't pay you much at all.
1: Yeah, I didn't pay as much at all. Like Being an intern in India doesn't pay much. Especially being like a chartered accountant intern, it doesn't pay much at all.
0: I mean, for my first internship, I barely made any money. I was getting paid $8 an hour, which is considered shit, especially for an engineering company, especially for an aerospace company. But for me, I was ecstatic because it was a learning experience, which is such a cliche response. Like, I did it for the experience. But for me, I mean, it was actually for the experience where when you work in an aerospace company. You learn engineering in a completely different way. But yeah, I mean, they weren't paying much at all. And I would say for interns, I don't know about you, Harsh, but I would recommend working in a small company because the smaller the company, the more that you get to understand how every part of the company works. However, you're going to be sacrificing pay. This is at least for the engineering industry. Would you say similar stuff for the accounting one? Or would you say you don't have advice on that?
1: Yes, I would say the same thing for the accounting one. If you work for a very big company, like the big force, and by the way, when I say accounting, I mean auditing. I don't mean passing entries. I don't mean bookkeeping. I mean, you are an auditor. You're not an accountant per se. So what happens with these larger companies is that you end up being over-specialized from the beginning, which is not that great of a choice, but it pays more. So depending on how much you need the money, you have to make your own choice. My recommendation is to do both. You, mm-hmm. go, you, you have to do the three years anyway, right? To get this degree. You have to be three years a slave, you could say. So first for the first year, you could be enslaved by a big corporation, and then you could be enslaved by a smaller corporation. And then when you get your freedom, then you can do what you want. The
0: thing with big corporations, especially for interns, is that you do such boring work. From what I've heard, you're doing PowerPoints, Microsoft Excel. While for a small company, I was actually seeing how parts for airplanes were made. I was seeing the software side of things, hardware side of things. But Harsh, this was the craziest part. So since this was such a small company, around the end of my internship, there was another company that bought out my company. And they fired, I would say, 75% of the company, including the CEO. And since it was such a small organization, we all knew each other. So I come into work one day, I see all these people crying with pink slips on their desk, the CEO packing up their box. I'm like, oh no, uh, did I get fired too? But I was an intern, so they didn't fire me. But Harsh, one of the things that bugged me was there was this recruiter, like the lady that I was in contact with that pretty much got me the job. She was the one who got me the interview with the CEO, et cetera. But she was fine. I think her, I think her name was Carly. She was 27 years old. And she was this eye candy. She would always come to my desk. She's like, Armani, is everything going well? I was like, yeah, everything's going well. Unfortunately, Harsh, she was fired too.
1: But why did they fire 75% of all people?
0: So the reason that they fired them was because the new company was pretty much just buying our company uh, to manufacture parts. That's all they needed. And they didn't necessarily need the accounting and the software, the systems engineers, etc., as much. Because they already had those features in their company. They were predominantly buying our company with one intention in mind. And that was predominantly for the hardware.
1: Ah, I see. So it's like buying a company for the technology and then just taking the technology and firing everyone in it.
0: Yeah, it's like, let's say you you have enough capital right now to buy different organizations. And you're like, man, I use... What's one service you use a lot? Let's say... Twitter. Yeah, let's say Twitter. I mean... You don't necessarily need content creators from Twitter, if there was any. You just literally just want them for the distribution channel. And this is how a lot of buyouts happen, where that's why a lot of people get fired. They don't need all facets of your business. They just need certain parts. Hmm, I see. Seeing the CEO get fired like that, man, because his office was right next to my cube. So he'd always bring donuts every Friday. And I'm over here seeing him packing up his boxes. It was a very bizarre experience. And seeing so many people crying and asking, like, what am I going to do now? I mean, this, is, this was just a strange experience for me.
1: The big life lesson here is that it's a mistake to dedicate your life to a company because they don't care about you.
0: That was one of the that was one of the lessons I learned harsh. It's actually fascinating that you brought it up. But there was this, I would say, sixty four year old named Douglas, and he gave his whole life to the company, uh, or plenty of decades at least. And they just fired him like that, and he was shocked because he thought he was going to get his retirement there, and now he had to, you know, spend the next year looking for something. It was just a whole mess.
1: How does a 65-year-old find a job anyway? Who hires a 65-year-old?
0: In the engineering industry, it's tough. Where in the engineering industry, if you say you have too much experience, that's not a good thing. Uh, Tons of PhDs can't get jobs because hiring people are like, do you really know how to build stuff or are you a paper engineer? Mm. There's, There's a lot of PhDs that don't get jobs. I mean, this is a big problem. That's why it's like, if you're going to get your PhD in something, I don't recommend with engineering. Get your master's in it if you need to, but bachelor's is often enough to get your foot in the door.
1: Interesting. But even then, I think that a 40-year-old can do the same job as a typical 65-year-old. If it's an execution job, not like a management job.
0: I'll take it one level further a 22 year old can do a similar job as a 40 year old and a 22 year old isn't going to give you shit where there were plenty of times in my engineering (laughs) career where the more experience that you had, the more opinionated you were. And they'll be like, well, why do we have to change up these processes? We've always been doing it like this. While the young gun straight out of college is like, all right, I'll do it. Uh, Do you have more work for me? And Mm. senior managers were seeing this where Senior managers were like, man, these young guys are hungry. They want more. They're so ambitious. While these people that have been in the company for so long, all they do is they gossip. They take six hours on a job that can take 20 minutes. And these young guys are showing this to us. So it was an interesting time in the engineering space because, I mean, the digital divide is a real thing. Where guys our age, we grew up with technology. So we can always think of different ways to use technology in different ways. While I'll say two generations before, or even one generation before, they understand technology, but some of them are not eager to change the processes.
1: I think it happens to people as they get older. The older you are, the less willing you are to change. Mm. The more set in your ways you become. Where, for example, you can actually see this in the real world, you know, with technology. Let's say learning how to use mobile phones. The uh-huh. older a person is, the less they know how to use phones, even though they've been around since the beginning of phones. Right. And that's simply because So when someone is old, they, you, they don't want to learn how to, new, how to use this new technology. Whatever they were doing earlier is working for them. So yeah. they, don't, they don't want to do it. They, they think, why do we need this new stuff? The previous one is working fine. Versus someone right. who's young thinks, hey, there's some new hot technology. Let me go try it. I want mm-hmm. to be the most cutting edge.
0: And it's fun for us. I love it. It is fun.
1: And I can tell you like, this happened to me, right? So when I was like 15 years old, 14 years old, I started using linux and back then i would try to be really cool and i would install all these different distributions of linux i think i would use this one arch linux which was the most well i back then i thought it was really complex and i thought i was really cool for using it and it was the most it's the most cutting-edge version of linux you could say everything is super up to date and you you have to assemble the entire thing yourself you have to pick out different parts different drivers and install them yourself you feel like a god doing it especially when you're 14 years old but now at 25 i'm running a business and now i use ubuntu simply because i don't want to do all of that work i just want Mm -hmm. to click a button and i want it all to work on its own and nowadays i find myself reluctant to learn new stuff like I, i find myself reluctant to learn how to do things i just want like a service to do it for me. I just want to get my work done. So there's a different mindset here. I'm no longer using technology for its own sake. I'm using it because I want to accomplish a particular task. There's a difference here.
0: Right. And especially since you're running a business, you don't have the time to take everything apart, see how it works with that sparkle in your eye, like you did when you were a kid.
1: No, even... When I do have the time, for example, when I was a kid and I got my first phone, I went to settings. I checked out all the options that were available and I figured out all the things that I could do with the phone. Like, I, you know, there's like a setting which lets me draw lines on the phone in the developer tools, etc. On my current phone, I just had the guy transfer all my apps and my data from my old phone to the new one. And I don't think I've opened settings except when I really needed to. And at this point, I don't even know what's in the settings. I have to Google. Okay, I need this thing to turn off. How? What do I do? And then I'll just follow what needs to be done. I'll just do it and I'll close my phone. Mm-hmm. So there's a general reluctance to learn new tech as you grow older.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially in the engineering field, where you have to learn. Otherwise, you're going to get fired. And when you don't have that spirit, where for you, I mean, you don't necessarily need to learn it as much as you had to back in the days because you're a business owner. But in corporations, especially as an engineer, if you're not always staying updated, then that's going to be a problem. Where for my first internship, I worked alongside this lady named Amy, who is a software engineer. And I would always go in her cube to see what she was doing. And she was this lady in her mid-40s, Asian woman. And she would always whine that she had to learn more. She was like, you see, Armand, learning never ends. And even though she was whining, she was doing it. And because I was a school student at that time who was working a part-time job and doing the internship, for me, with the school paradigm, I'm like, but you already are a software engineer. I thought like you already figured it out she was giving me real world insights into like no like it's all like technology is always growing you got to learn more and you got to keep doing it so i mean the engineering p- industry in my opinion is going to change a lot in the upcoming era i mean it's going to it's going to be something that favors a lot of young people but there's going to be a problem that arises where young people they're often not given um given the leadership positions because their face looks too young and managers understand that no one's going to get managed by a 25, 27 year old. I mean, that's ridiculous. And that's when there's going to be that pickle where it's like, okay, this guy's so ambitious. He's amazing in his job. He has charisma, but the people aren't going to follow him because he's so young. What do we do? And that's going to be, that's going to be something that they're going to have to deal with in the upcoming years.
1: Hmm interesting. I saw I that
0: have... you I saw that you wrote recently that you hired or you were hiring someone that was born in 2000s.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really surprised when I see these resumes nowadays of people born in 2004. And sometimes I'm give you a resume. Like I got a resume from a guy born born in 2006. 2006. 2006? How old is that, man? 616. <laughs>
0: That's so young. That
1: is so young. But I can't you believe hire people born 2006 and 2004 are like 18 years old now.
0: Right. Did you hire them? No. <laughs> so you make them uh, submit a resume?
1: No, for the... For one of my businesses I just like put out like we need someone and we put up an email ID and people just send a bunch of resumé's and
0: do you have a and, certain philosophy for how a person should hire someone else
1: I don't have a particular philosophy typically if there's a recommendation that works well in their favor usually you want the the main thing you're looking for is talent intelligence integrity and good communication skills
0: and do you okay so you don't look for any skill sets where you know how back in the days it was like you needed to show what sort of skill sets that you were good in for you to get hired it seems like you look more into the soft skills
1: it depends on what you're hiring for you know Like Mm -hmm. if you're hiring an engineer, then you have to check their skills, you know. But if you're hiring someone who is going to assist you, like he's an assistant, then the skills he'll learn on the job. But his willingness to learn and his intelligence and ability to learn is what you're testing
0: for. That's big. Do you get them on contracts or do you hire them job by job?
1: it depends on which business for some businesses you know like for example for the consulting thing i was doing earlier i would have employees like salaried employees versus for lmm i would typically hire them as freelancers
0: okay isn't it annoying where with a freelancer everything's going well you feel like you found the right guy and then suddenly they start getting lazy has that ever happened to you
1: It'll happen sometimes, but then you have the option. That's going to happen with employees too, by the way. But with freelancers, you have the, employee, the option of like not hiring them anymore.
0: Right. There was this one team who gave me such an amazing book cover. And I was like, okay, for the next job, I want you to format the book and do the book cover. Because before that, I was getting one guy to do the cover, another to do the editing or the formatting. It was difficult for them to be in the same theme. So this guy was speaking on time. He was getting back to me on time. I'm thinking, man, this is going to be perfect. We're going to do multiple books together. This guy gives a shitty cover at first, and his formatting is so freaking bad. I mean, he has a whole team. And this is when he's over here whining. He's just like, oh, well, my designer, one of them got sick, and now the other guy's working on yours. I'm sorry. I'm so stressed. I'm not even going to make too much money from this project. I'm like, bro. I don't need to hear all that stuff. Just deliver the final product. And it was just sad where one second you're thinking you're going to be working with them long-term. And then the next second you're like, Man, I can't wait till this project is over. So I never have to see you again.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of these guys, what they do is, especially these freelancers online who charge like really high amounts, they outsource your work. So they'll pretend to be a web developer and then let's say you pay them 3000 bucks to make your site. They'll outsource it to some guy on Fiverr for 400 bucks, and then keep the change. They'll keep it 2600 So a lot of freelancers who I know on the internet don't do the work themselves. They just act as if they're intelligent. they know what they're doing, but they actually get the work done by someone on Fiverr.
0: Right. Now that you're bringing it up, I'm pretty sure that's what happened with this guy. This was one of my earlier books. So, I mean, I've learned along the way, but I've seen how important it is to hire the right people.
1: It is one of the most important things in your business. If you hire the wrong people, you could have the best business plan in the world and it'll fail.
0: Absolutely. So, have you
1: hired an employee before?
0: I mean, I predominantly do the whole freelancers thing. And pretty much eventually it feels like a salary because, I mean, I'll give them monthly projects. So I know there's a baseline that I'm going to be paying them every month. But I haven't gotten people on salary like that.
1: Yeah, that's actually better because getting people on salary, well, let's say that you no longer want to get a particular type of work done. Then firing them becomes a task.
0: Do you have paperwork involved to get them fired?
1: There's always paperwork involved to get someone fired.
0: Mm. Okay, so you're like super into like getting them on salary. It's It's a very formal process.
1: I don't recommend doing it if you are running a business. I recommend avoiding getting employees as much as possible. Because so you than, have to manage them. And that takes a lot of time and effort. And lately, like like I said, for my current businesses, like Life Math Money, it's typically just freelancers. But back in the consulting days, I would have employees.
0: And you had to do the managing yourself? Yeah. Man, that does not sound fun to me, man.
1: Yeah, it, it becomes... Half of your day basically goes in coordinating what the employee is doing. Because, you know, if you ask the average employee whether he works enough to earn his salary or he works less than enough, so if you ask an employee whether he's working enough that he feels he's being fairly paid, he'll say that he feels he's working extra. So if he should be doing X, he's doing X plus five. So he feels that he's Not just working enough, he's working more than what is necessary for Mm -hmm. whatever pay he's getting. But if you ask the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur will tell you that his employees are working way less than what he's paying them for. So there's always this thing where the guy who's paying the employee feels that he's overpaying and the employee feels he's being underpaid. The thing is that when you have a salaried employee, every single year you'll keep paying them more and more because you have to increment their salary. And at the end of the day, you end up at a situation where you're paying someone say 50,000 rupees a month when you can hire someone new for 25,000 rupees and they'll do the same job.
0: Well, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, I don't know much about your other business at all, but a brand like Life Math Bunny, I don't see a need for getting salaries salaried employee there, yeah, most nothing. businesses nowadays I mean I don't see a need for salaried employees, and especially because what you were just mentioning, the whole management side of things, where if you're doing the whole managing too, I mean it's difficult to be creative and create I had this one coworker who he ended up becoming a manager, and I would say he got. A $20,000 raise, which was considered a lot on the floor. And he did his job for three weeks. And then he asked to be demoted back to the position he was in before. I was like, why'd you ask to be demoted? I mean, you finally got a promotion after so many years in the company. And he jokingly said, it's because machines don't argue back, but people do. And the whole floor started laughing. We're just like, huh, I see exactly what you're com- where you're coming from. Because managing, it's not fun. Especially, I mean, I I get a glimpse of that, Harsh, whenever I'm dealing with a fucking shitty freelancer. And this guy is doing such a bad job where now I'm like, damn, like this is like a participatory project. I got to participate with you to get the quality done. And each time they're getting a little bit better, but they think that I'm giving them extra work. Instead, I'm trying to get them to fix their rubbish. And it's just this miscommunication that's going on. And I'm thinking, thank God I, I don't have to see this guy again. But if I do have <laughs> to see this guy again, it's like a salaried employee. Yeah, Did you what have thought, that? Like, what's your haircut? Where you get a haircut, the guy does an awful job. He forgets to cut a part of your hair. And now you got to come home and you're like, and now I got to cut this hair off and it's going to make a mess on my sink. I mean, why did I even give this guy money in the first place? Why did I even give him tip? You ever had that moment with your haircut?
1: I actually had the moment last week. (laughs) (laughs) I got my beard done and he didn't do it properly. So it was uneven. Do you know where like one side is a bit higher than the other?
0: I can't empathize with that because I don't have a beard. But continue.
1: Yeah, and I actually paid him a tip and I'm... when I got home and I saw it was uneven after I took a bath, <laughs> I was thinking, I, first of all, I paid this guy to do the beard. Then I gave him a tip. And now I have to do the beard myself.
0: It's always after the shower, too. Like, you don't notice it while you're at the barbershop. But after the shower, you're like, ah, man, it's uneven.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the shower makes the hair heavier and fall down. So it's easier to see right but whereas the same with clothes you expect a guy who does this for a living to
0: know how to do it properly and some of the mistakes are so freaking basic where for a while I used to cut my own hair in the freshman year of college and when I look at these uh, haircuts that I sometimes get I'm like bro I literally have the easiest hairstyle out there it's a comb over a dummy can do a comb over and you get paid to do it and you still mess it up and how it you one hair how did i do it mm-hmm. so you you develop a feel for it so i got uh, the the clippers i got a whole set from ross for $14.99. and it comes with the clippers the scissors the robe everything and i just learned through trial and error you get a 3 on the side and then you just scissor cut the top and the top is pretty easy. The side isn't too bad. The tough parts is to just make sure you're edged up even, which you How learn do throughout the time. The back of your head, the back of the head. So I got another mirror, and I put that mirror behind me, and I tilted it in a certain way where I could see the back of my head while looking at the front of the mirror.
1: I have to ask, what is the motivation behind cutting your own hair?
0: So, mind you, this was freshman year in college. I don't do it anymore. But when you're a college student, you're trying to save as much money as you can. So, me saving 20 bucks on a monthly haircut, that was just more money for partying.
1: How much does a haircut cost there? 20 bucks?
0: 20 to $25 uh, plus tips.
1: Damn, okay, that's crazy. Yours? 100 rupees, so like $1.3. That's it, yeah, and back when I was a kid, it would like be much cheaper, like it would cost half a dollar, but now I go to a more expensive place.
0: <laughs> dude, that's insane. A dollar for a haircut
1: it's a haircut. Why are you paying twenty bucks for it? I
0: don't know you you got me thinking now,
1: <laughs> so yeah, a haircut in India would cost you one and a half dollars for a good haircut. From a barber. Do, you,
0: do you go to the same person all the time? Yeah. So I did. And what we were speaking about with the whole Fiverr and freelancers, how sometimes talent turns bad, every barber that I have, within a six-month time span, they get too comfortable and they get lazy. And that's when I have to find another barber.
1: That's so weird. Hmm.
0: So my last Your barber- Your hair is
1: simple. It's not even that complex.
0: It's so freaking simple, man. That's what infuriates me because I'm like, it's not like I'm asking for highlights or spikes or anything like that. It's literally just a trim. Just make it shorter than it is. You don't have to do anything more than that. And each time there'll be some mishap, which seems small at first, but to the person who's getting the haircut, it's big. And I'm sure you can tell, like when a certain side of your head is puffy, you could just tell the person owner of the hair is always able to notice when something is wrong, especially because I do YouTube videos where it's glaringly obvious. And I'm like, man, I got to find another barber now. My last barber was amazing. I mean, he's roughly around my age. We could talk about the same things, but something like his personal life got too heavy where his girl ended up, um, I, I would say cheating on him. And that emotionally affected him a lot. That's when his client's haircuts was suffering from that. I'm like, bro, I'm with you through the thick and the thin, but not with my hair, man. You can't be messing that up. Hmm. Good guy, though. I mean, we still talk as friends, but we're not, I'm not taking a service anymore.
1: I see. It's very interesting down- you mentioned that you notice your hair more because you do YouTube. A lot of people don't realize what actually goes into making content, you know? So for example, after I got back from my hike, I felt a bit sick. You know, you get a cold sometimes when you are very exerted because your immune system is a bit weakened. So I felt like a bit of a cold. And it would be completely normal if I did anything else. But because I make videos and podcasts, me getting a cold would actually mess my business up. Right. So a lot of people don't realize how complex the whole content creation business comes is actually.
0: It is, especially let's say you have to write some blog posts and you're sick. How difficult is it to think then?
1: You can't write. You can't write properly. Like you can write, but it would suck.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a it's a holistic field, especially if you're consistent. You have to do a lot of things that others may not even notice. Where for a lot of our episodes, I mean, remember the beginning of the episodes where one of our mics was working, the other one wasn't. And yeah, and that kept happening. Technical behind, right? There's technical behind the scenes work. So you got to understand a little bit of technology. And then to speak for two to four, to one of our episodes went up to five hours. You need to be able to stake. What, what's the word that I'm looking for, Harsh? I mean, you have to be mentally to alert, Right. I mean, it's a process for sure. So I'm I'm glad you noticed it. It's something I'd never realized
1: as a content consumer. It's only when I started creating content, I realized how much work and attention goes into it.
0: Right. It's a mental sport.
1: It really is. It really is. And, you know, a lot of things kind of like, especially because of how creative the whole thing is, If something isn't right, it ends up showing in the work. For example, if you have a stomachache and you record a podcast, your voice won't be as good.
0: That's true. There was this one time harsh where I had to record this video called The Power of Smile. So you're thinking it's gonna be this upbeat positive video. And what happened is right before I'm about to record the video. I noticed that there's a tiny little screw uh, for my camera stand that's missing. And that's the screw that connects the camera to the camera stand. And mind you, this camera is worth, I would say $800, which is a high quality camera. So without this tiny little screw, if I just put the camera on top of the stand, it's going to slide off and it's going to shatter. So I'm feeling creative. I'm like, man, let me record this video already. Like, what am I going to do? Like, where's this damn screw? I'm looking all around. I can't find it. I spent an hour and a half looking, still can't find it. Now I got to go to Best Buy, which is like a computer shop. I go there. They're trying to upsell me and all these different cameras. I'm like, look, guys, I already have the camera that's working. I just need this tiny little screw. They're like, just a screw? We can't just sell you the screw. We have to sell you the entire camera stand, and the entire stand is going to be 75 bucks. I'm like seventy five bucks for just a little screw, nah. So I come back after spending another hour and a half in Best Buy, and I'm over here looking for the screw. And you ever had that one moment when you drop something, and it ends up being somewhere like nowhere near where you dropped it?
1: <laughs> no, <he's not. laughs>
0: That's that literally what happened to me. Where I see the screw under uh, like a table, right where I'm entering my door, not n- anywhere near the studio. So it took four hours roughly from me wanting to record the video uh, to actually finding the screw and recording it. And the video is called The Power of the Smile. So you think it's going to be upbeat. And nowadays I could just look at my face and I look so exhausted in that video because the backstory behind it, you see? So a lot of the times Mm. nowadays when I'm consuming someone's video, I'm like, this guy looks a little bit tired than he normally does. I wonder if he has a screw story himself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like performance art. You know, it's it's literally a performance art.
0: Right. Where, you have
1: to be on your A game.
0: Where you're sick right now, or you're somewhat sick, and it's like you're still speaking. But maybe in the future, when you're listening back to this video or this audio, you're going to be like, I noticed a micro change. Oh wait, that's the episode that I was sick.
1: I can actually tell, like you know, which article I wrote when I wasn't feeling that good, and it does. It's it the article doesn't read as well. Right. So there's a lot of these nuances. A there's a lot of it, and people don't realize how much goes into producing
0: art. Yes, for sure. So you gave me homework last time, Harsh. Do you recall that?
1: I do not. Tell me what the so homework the, was.
0: So in the end of our last episode, we were talking about red flags in men and red flags in women. And you had me list out five red flags in women. And I ah, only give you three. Right. I forgot which three I gave you, but I have two more. Mm-hmm. So one is that she has toxic friends. And two is that she doesn't take accountability for her actions or everyone around her is toxic. And I'm putting air quotes on toxic. Any questions on either one?
1: Yeah. Elaborate both.
0: So the first one is toxic friends. I noticed it's not just with women. Anytime you're hanging out with losers, if you're hanging out with four losers, you're going to become the fifth. I mean, that's a platitude we've heard plenty of times. But if you look at the woman, and if she's consistently hanging out with promiscuous girls, and it's just a matter of time that one of our other friends are going to do something silly, and she's consistently hanging out with these people, adopting their mannerisms, I mean, it's not rocket science, but this girl is probably going to become just like her friends. And this becomes news to a lot of smart people. They're like, yeah, but she's not her friends. Trust me, she's different. Time and time again, I've noticed this pattern happening. If she has toxic friends or clown-like friends, she's eventually going to become one too.
1: Agreed now, 100% with this. I have had the exact same experience in both ways, actually. Like where you had good friends and you become better. And when you have bad friends and you actually end up becoming worse. But go ahead.
0: Yeah, I mean... I could tell you a story about that later, but the other one was everyone around her is toxic, where I'm not going to say the name, but I'm, let's just say a cousin of mine. Uh, she looks so sweet, always. She's tiny, right? Looks pleasant. But all the time, she's surrounded in drama. And initially, I'm like, nah, man, like it's my cousin. I mean, she can't be in the wrong. But time and time again, it's like one drama after the next, after another one. She's like, I hate drama. I'm like, why the hell is drama always around you? It's because subconsciously, she's normally causing a lot of it. And you'll see this. You'll be like, um, how was your last boyfriend or how was your last boss? Oh, uh, he was toxic. What about the one after that? Oh, he was toxic too. What about the one after that? Oh, he was toxic too. I'm like, wait a minute. Everyone is toxic? I'm pretty sure you have some part in this. But this person doesn't have that psyche to be like, "Oh no, I was in the wrong too." In their mind, it's like, "Nah, like this person was in the wrong. I was just uh, a bystander." So that was a that was the other red flag.
1: Have you noticed, Armand, that, was- that a lot of people actually fail to realize that they're the only common denominator in all of their interactions with people, and if the same thing is happening with all in all of their interactions, they're the ones causing it. Like if one person is an asshole, then they're the asshole. But if everyone's an asshole to you, then you're doing something which is making people treat you badly.
0: Right. And sometimes I could see the case where where she's coming from, because I'll put myself in the shoes. And there's plenty of times where I would say I'm not... I'm not a hard person to work with, but I'm not easy either. If I'm if you're like working on a project for me, because I want certain deadlines, I want you to meet a certain quality. And I notice like routinely, like if I'm working with a person for a long time, if we do at least eight projects together, that's like, wow, like, we're really having this chemistry. But a lot of the times, I mean, I'm like, man, I'm suffering from bad talent. And that's when I have to evaluate myself. And I'm like, And you're probably just a little too hard on these people or you're expecting something or maybe your delivery could be improved. But the first thing that's going on, Harsh, is like, how can I improve too? How can I hire the right people? That's why earlier I was asking you, like, what do you look in to hire people? Because I'm genuinely curious. But if this person is not even curious and she's just like, oh, this guy was toxic and here's why, that's a red flag.
1: I think a lot of people just do it to protect their own ego because who wants to say that yeah I was being too dramatic so the guy left me like very very few people would want to actually say that mm-hmm. so I think a lot of it is down to ego and reputation preservation as well right what was the other red flag you were talking about
0: So those were the two. So one was... um, Not
1: being accountable, right?
0: Accountable. And the other one was hanging out with toxic people. Oh, by the way, let me take it one level further. Not only hanging out with the toxic people, but justifying the toxic people's behaviors, which is key. This is actually highly important where... It's one thing if she's hanging out with toxic people and she's like, listen, like this is the stage in my life where I don't really have any other friends. I I knew these people for a long time. And like, you know, this is just my friend circle, which still isn't good. But I mean, I kind of get that. But let's say one of her friends is like cheating on her boyfriends. And this girl is justifying it like, oh, well, you don't understand what this guy puts her through, blah, blah, blah. Red flag. You got to you got to leave. So these were the two red flags, Harsh. I can't recall the other three, and I can't even recall the ones that I said for the guys. But the main one I do recall from the guys, and I believe we both agreed on this, was a lack of ambition, where that's one of the main reasons a lot of relationships fall apart, because a guy gets too content. So you got to keep that ambition strong.
1: Yes, but I will say that if the girl herself is completely unambitious, then she would be just as well with a guy who is not super ambitious too.
0: So Harsh, what's your perception of an ambitious woman? And the reason I ask this, Harsh, is because I recall one time you were mentioning that career women aren't your version of ambitious. Was I correct about that?
1: Finding the right words for this because people interpret the word ambition in different ways so some people interpret the word ambition as trying to get more material stuff and you know having more status so one interpretation of an ambitious girl could be a woman who wants a great career who wants power etc and that is a huge negative in woman in a, in a woman in my why opinion. do you think
0: that is, and why do you think that is?
1: Because that distracts her from her duties of a woman. Like it would be like, if 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 a woman wants to do that, that's fine, but she would not make you a good wife. Okay. On the other hand, you could also interpret ambition as a woman who wants to have a great house. She wants to have many kids. She wants to raise them well, make sure the kids are very successful, give them the right values. That's also an ambitious woman. So it depends on the person's, how they interpret ambition? So, So a woman of this type who wants to have a great house, raise good kids, is a great woman to have she would make you an amazing wife.
0: Gotcha. So that's, your, that's pretty much your perception of ambition for women. So you're saying if a woman isn't doing that, then it's justified for a man not to be professionally ambitious.
1: Right? Yeah. For example, if a woman herself isn't a great woman, she doesn't deserve a great man. And a great man wouldn't want her anyway. She'll do well with a less ambitious person.
0: What's your definition of ambition for men?
1: Wanting power or status or anything, you know, wanting to rise in the world, however they define it.
0: Right, like more control over their destiny.
1: Yes, and over other people.
0: Gotcha, that makes that makes a lot of sense. How, do you know anyone that's been fired if they didn't get the coronavirus shot?
1: No, okay, India no, okay. Indian people are very compliant. For so okay. far, I haven't gotten any shot, and I'm still here. So, but I own my own business.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one thing
1: what... I, re- I realize, you know, where. If you don't own your own source of income, then you're a slave. Like the government can literally force you to inject stuff in you.
0: Well, the reason I brought that question up, Harsh, is because there's this guy that I know that he's been super into his career in the corporate world. He's been moving up. And then the whole coronavirus shot came in and he's like, I'm not going to do it. And that's when Biden was saying that you had to do it. And his company was eventually going to ask him for a proof that he got it done or just proof on his health status. And this guy said, if you guys make me do that, I'm going to quit my job. And this was the first time we were having this in-depth talk two weeks ago where now he's thinking about starting a business, but it's, it's captivating to see someone's why behind the business. Because Harsh, did you notice a lot of the times when people who aren't doing business see someone doing business? The first thing they'll say is, Oh, this guy just wants more money, which may be a driving force. But a lot of the times it's because they'll say something about along the lines of, Oh, well, I want more freedom. Where this guy, like, you know, seeing his very beginning of, you know, him possibly getting fired to him saying, Listen, I want to start my own business so no one can ever get me this scared again. I mean, this is this is how I picture a lot of origin stories in regarding. Business. They just want more power and control over themselves and their lives. It's not like you can't do that with corporate life. It's just with what do you think about that? I mean, do you think you could have power in a corporate life as well? I have three thoughts to
1: everything you said. So I'll go one by one. Okay. Okay. The first thing was you know, what I realized that if you know if you don't control your source of income you are a lot like a cow. And what I mean to say is, are you, do you, are you aware that cows are injected with, injected with, injected with estrogen to ha- may help them produce milk all the time?
0: Mm-mm, I didn't know about that.
1: So yeah, to milk the cow, like nowadays they inject the cow with estrogen and that kind of like gets the milk that's running and they produce a lot of milk. I realize that if you don't own your source of income you are as good as a cow because these guys will inject stuff in your body.
0: That's a very stunning parallel.
1: Yeah. The other thought I had was if the laws itself is tyranny, if the laws themselves are tyrannous, then breaking them is a good thing. For example, if Hitler came And made a law that says that if you don't have papers that confirm that you're not a Jew, we're going to torture and kill you. And you're a Jew, and you forge paperwork that says that you're not a Jew. That is not a sin. In fact, you're doing the right thing. Right. So just because something is illegal or frowned upon culturally does not make it wrong. Like only God can judge man and not some tyrannous government. So, if someone is hypothetically going to lose their income, get fired, and they, through legal or illegal means, comply with the regulation without complying with it, let's say they forge a certificate or something, I would not consider that to be a wrong thing to do. It's an illegal thing, but not a wrong thing from a moral perspective laws themselves can be tyrannous and they are in this case
0: well that's what's happening with Kyrie Irving I don't think you've heard the name have you no you may have okay well he's a a basketball player who plays for the New Jersey Nets and New York has a or the New York Nets I believe that's what it's called now anyways Brooklyn Nets there Uh we go in New York and Brooklyn there's this law where you have to get the shot and Unless you get the shot, then you can't play in a professional basketball game. So what's been happening with him is something that's really strange. He could play games away from the state, but he can't play games in his hometown. And he's one of the best players in the league, which is, which is you know, there's been a lot of controversy regarding this, while a, another group of Americans are viewing him as a patriot. So he's a very polarized topic because some people are like, he should just get the shot so he could play all the games. And then the but other people are like... Where
1: do you draw the line? If the government says you got to like get fucked in the ass by some drag queen to go out of your house, would you comply with that? Because you could make the know. same argument. like Just let a drag queen fuck you in the ass so that you can go out of the house. Like Why are you resisting? <laughs> so where do you draw the line? because this is not a joke thing like you you want to inject something in my body without my permission that is not that is not normal
0: right how about your parents have have they been convincing you to get the shot yeah has there been any conflicts since you're not getting it
1: not really no
0: okay because with this guy that was about to get fired i mean he's not talking to his parents or let me rephrase his parents aren't talking to him till he gets the shot so not only what is it difference? affecting his professional life it's affecting his personal life too
1: i mean that's just a bad parent because that's this there's imposition and there is convincing there's a difference
0: right and to take it a level further man he had this wedding that he was supposed to go to and his cousins uninvited him from the wedding. So I'm like, bro, you're just getting hit left and right from all of this. Arman, you know, when you read the
1: history of Nazi Germany and, you know, all these social injustices, you know how people like to think that if they were in the shoes, you know, if they were in Nazi Germany, they would not be complying with Hitler and they would save the Jews, etc. You know how people have this fantasy? Yes. The same people who talk about these freedom things, are also the same people who asked you to put on your mask and take the shot and said they won't talk to you if you don't take the shot. Right. If they were born in Nazi Germany, they would be gassing the Jews. If they were born in America when they had slaves, they would have slaves. These people are NPCs.
0: Well, this is the... Very scary thing about human nature, where I mean, you brought up a good point. I mean, we're normally talking about the good sides of things, and we're like, oh, yeah, I would have done this because I'm a good guy. But you never know how dark people can be if the situation presented itself.
1: No, I think most people are just NPCs who do whatever the culture says they should do. For example, the same guy who will say how evil the Nazis are and how everyone they don't like is a fascist. It's the same guy who supported the brutal suppression of the trucker protests in Canada. hmm These people just do what they are told. They're NPCs. They don't think. They don't have a soul.
0: Do you think that's why group think is on the rise?
1: I think most of pe- most people are... NPCs. They don't have a soul. They just do what they're told. Right. I don't think groupthink is on a rise. I think it was always this way. It's just that nowadays the whole dispersion of information is so centralized that there are more and more people who believe in the same thing, but it is important to know that they were always this way. Just that they didn't have access to the same masters.
0: Hmm. What about people who are stuck and think for themselves? How do, you, how do you expect them to find a community? Where, the internet. That's a good response. What are where, we
1: doing right now?
0: Right, right. Where they say that being an entrepreneur is the loneliest job in the world. That was a, another job that was lonely, like being a free thinker or knowing how to think for yourself is lonely. That's why Harsh. I think there are groups of people that finish these episodes all the way through, where we're friends to them. They're not just listening to an episode of Strangers. They're like, wait a minute, these two remind me of me, and we're we're all friends.
1: Agree. I think that listening to a podcast like this one, you would, it is it essentially kind of shows you're not an NPC. Because of the content of the show. Because if you were an NPC, you'd get pissed off in the first 20 minutes and start throwing terms at us, calling us sexist, (laughs) misogynist, what have you.
0: Because different people consume these podcasts in different ways. So I don't necessarily know how the people who consume it on Spotify, Apple, and what is it, Google podcast thinks. Because I don't know if you could comment on those platforms. But on YouTube, I mean, there hasn't been I mean, I think there's been a few times where some people got mad. I remember this one time, this girl got really mad at you, but I wanted the comment up, but YouTube wasn't displaying the comment because they have run some stuff recently where they're trying to prevent bots or hateful language. And they just randomly took away the, or they weren't making it visible. I'm like, make it visible because
1: we want to respond.
0: (laughs) We like that stuff. (laughs) Yeah. it's completely fine, but like you're right where this podcast isn't for everyone. And I think in the future more content is going to be like that where it's like this isn't for everyone. This is for certain people who have had similar experiences and can understand the language that we're speaking. There's this there's this thing that I read. It was in a book where I know you don't listen to music or consume too much shows, but let's say like there's a musician Normally, whenever we're consuming music, we're doing other things. We may be in the gym. We may be in a long drive. So it's something that's passive, that's reminding us of a certain experience. So if I see this famous musician up live, I'm not necessarily expecting this musician to sign my autograph. If he wants to, it'll be cool. But let's say you're watching a sitcom. Normally, you're not doing other activities. Normally, you're sitting on your couch. You probably had a long day, you're eating a snack, and you're watching the the TV show. So if you find the actor of the show in real life, you'll be offended if this guy doesn't sign your autograph. And I know you don't personally care, but the reason that this connects to us is because if someone ever met me and you in real life, and let's say they're in-depth into Unapologetic Truths. They'd want or they'd feel like they know us. They'll be like, Yeah, Armani Harsh, what's up? Yo, let me buy you a drink. Let me buy you a coffee. And if we're like, No, I'm busy, they'll be like, They'll take it personally because, right? right? You see what I'm saying? It's the different psychological way of content consumption. You're right about that. Especially harsh people who are listening all the way up until here because with YouTube analytics, I could see how long people watch stuff through. Mm -hmm. And some people, they just come, they'll they'll look through the timestamp, they'll be like, this interests me, this interests me, cool, I'm out. There are a lot of people who finish these episodes all the way through. So these are the people that, like, we're all friends at this point because they know us on a deep level.
1: I would actually like to meet some of these people. I think it would be cool in the future to throw some kind of party or barbecue or something. And invite all of our hardcore fans.
0: That'd be awesome.
1: See, let's try. Let's, let's set a date. Let's do it sometime in 2035.
0: <laughs> or we'll, 2030. We'll on, how many episodes will we have done by then? A lot.
1: Um, 26 episodes a year, roughly. And 2030 is eight years from now. So about, I think, 180.
0: Wow. I wonder if we add up all the hours of our episodes, how long it equates to. I mean, it, it's not going to take too long for me to do it, but it's a long time. The
1: then. Let me multiply 26 hours, 26 episodes into eight years. 208. Plus we're done with 19 And say the average length is two and a half hours. Or it's closer to three hours, I would say. So multiplied by three. We get 227 into three. That is 227 into three. 681 hours. That's a lot. Wow. 681 hours is a lot of time. Like, it's like if if someone is sitting 8 hours a day 5 days a week is going to take them 4 months to complete all of the episodes
0: wait wait so what number are you giving right now all the hours of the episodes we have
1: no uh, if we do one show every two weeks for the next 8 years and add up you know what we've already done
0: oh okay, shows, okay yeah these are these were good ideas man because we could always freeze frame ourselves. And I mean, nowadays, if I listen back to Unapologetic Truths episode one or even two, I'm like, not only do we sound different, but a lot, I mean, just a different side of us. You know, we're pretty much seeing ourselves growing up in real time. No, but what I was asking initially, Harsh, was, you know, the 19 episodes we have? Mm -hmm. I wonder how much hours total all of those episodes are combined. I'm probably going to check that out when I finish this episode. But I'm like looking through it right now. Probably a lot of 70. these episodes, 70 hours? Probably. Yeah, I could see that.
1: You know, Armand, have you ever wondered how future generations would take these podcasts? It could be like our own great, great, great grandchildren. For example, like, say, when I think of my great grandfather, I don't know anything about the man. Like, I know nothing, pretty much, except that he was a farmer.
0: When right. I You're talking read
1: about... read up, say, the history of great people from past times, let's say, you know, Chandragupta Maurya or Chanakya or even Western ones like Caesar, you don't... You get, like, what is passed down by other writers that wrote about them and things like that. You get bits and pieces of their personality here and there and you try to carve out a 3D image of the person. These guys didn't have the internet, like imagine how cool it would be if someone like Adolf Hitler had a podcast
0: right, or if Aristotle would, had a blog
1: yeah, or Aristotle have a had a blog or whoever you know like all the people you want to you want to know the motivations of like I would love to know why Hitler attacked Russia. seems like the dumbest thing to do, so it would mm-hmm. be really cool to know all of these people in a more three-dimensional way than we do currently, which is more of a narrative-based 2D way. But our children and grandchildren will know us personally. Like They Absolutely. will have thousands of hours of content and thoughts that we created ever since we were young and into old age. And they would be able to form a very good three-dimensional image of us In many ways, they would know us, like how the people listening to this podcast feel like they know us.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's the difference. I mean, it's not like it's just a tweet or anything where you just see a snapshot. I'm talking long form conversations where we're talking about metaphysics, intersexual dynamics, money. We're talking about so many different topics throughout all these Unapologetic Truths episodes. But yeah, I mean, they're literally going to feel like they know us, especially at this age and into the future.
1: I wonder what they'll think of us, like from Mm -hmm. whatever moral stance they have in their time. Right. Like, will they think we were barbarians or will they think, you know, it depends on how much culture changes.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's where you just got to unapologetically be yourself, I hear about generational wealth a lot, where you pass down your wealth to future generations. But -hmm. another concept I like to talk about on my Twitter account, at Armani Talks, if you all don't follow me, which is called generational ideas, where if you have a blog or if you have some sort of digital real estate that you own, you could pass it down and you could give your kids, grandkids, so many future generations insights that you learned the hard way. And it's a lot of the stuff that they're not going to teach you in school, but they can learn from great-great-great-great-great-granddad.
1: Writing is the only way to become immortal.
0: Mm. That's, a, that's a powerful insight because, I mean, think about it like this, like the holy books, I mean... They're still alive today. They still play a role in people's lives and they were written. What about just content in general, Harsh? Like these podcast episodes? It's the modern
1: equivalent of writing. Gotcha. Like I would love if we had actual writings from the time of Ram and Krishna back in the day, you know, back Thousands of years, what it was like, but it's a shame that if these writings existed, none of them survived to this day, or very few do, and we kind of have to infer what society was like back then, what their lessons were, what they figured out, and they weren't idiots. Like if you look at the monuments of the past, mm-hmm. like if you take the pyramids. They were so well made that people even today think that they were made by aliens because they don't give enough credit to how intelligent and clever the people who built these things were. They don't realize that the people of the past, the people who lived five, six, ten thousand years ago, these people just lacked modern technology, but they were just as intelligent, just as smart. Just as clever, just as innovative as we are. They just lack technology.
0: And they had a different type of technology too. Where for their generation, I mean, being able to write was a form of internet.
1: Yeah, exactly. Before... It was a form of internet. But what I mean to say is that they accomplished a lot of things and they learned a lot of things about people, humanity and society in general which is lost forever because the works of you know writing are lost or they didn't write certain things down right so i've been listening to this guy right um, dan carlin hardcore history and you it's just so fascinating how the scenario changes but how people never change can you explain In the sense that people tend to behave in the same way they behaved in response to the same stimuli. So the culture changes, the way of thinking changes, the values change, but people, the hardware doesn't change. For example, if you take a group of of people and you Independent, Like if you take uh, 5,000 kids and you independently leave them on an island somewhere and they grew up by themselves, they will create their own religion. Like They
2: will There's come up book- with the
1: concept of God. They'll come up with some sacrifices here and there. But almost every society will create a religion or something like that.
0: There's a great book that speaks somewhat about this. It's called The Lord of Flies. Have you ever heard of it? No. I can't recall exactly what it's about, but what you're bringing up right now, where if you put a bunch of kids in an island, that's similar to what it happens, where power dynamics get created. It's just an emergent property. It's not all 50-50. You got to read that book. We had to read it in high school growing up, but that just resonated with what you were just saying.
1: But there's a lot more to it, Arman. For example, if you take the cycles of inflation, People tend to behave in very similar ways on a macro level, not individual level, but on a macro level, groups of people will behave very similarly. For example, in for example, if you take a market crash today and compare it to a market crash two hundred years ago, you'll find the same behaviors happening.
0: Do you think it's because human nature is so ingrained, where if you give it the right? circumstances is just going to show itself time and time again
1: human nature is a part of humans it doesn't it's not it on a macro level it is the same as it was a long time ago even thousands of years ago the things that are changing are the values you could say the technology etc but people under the same circumstances would act in very similar ways
2: Hmm.
1: and of course culture does play a role for example you might have a culture that in a flight or flight situation they will fight or you might have a culture where in a fight or flight situation they will typically flee what I mean to say is that as a group people tend to behave in similar ways physically like teenagers of those times also wanted to be cool they wanted to be different they wanted to rebel like the kids of today do
0: Mm -hmm. there was this hilarious story where so in the u.s 70s era excuse me the 60s era was known as that era of like hippies doing drugs uh, the liberation era and everyone was highly liberal then so the kids in 70s, who were, let's say, 18, 19 years old. They were like, oh, we're that generation that, you know, we're promiscuous. This is our generation. Our parents didn't do anything like that in the 50s and 40s. And one guy's dad was like, who told you that? We were fucking in the 40s and 50s. And it was hilarious. If you saw the, I forgot what it was. I think it was an interview slash show. Because it showed that for the people in the 60s, they thought this was all new but they realized that their parents generation was doing the same thing as well just in a different way of course
1: yeah i think that after a certain time people just went unhinged with the whole promiscuity thing and but this has happened before you know when rome collapsed they had the same problem are you aware of that
0: well i heard their money was being debased that's what made them fall was there promiscuity are a lot of
1: reasons. That, that's one reason, but there are a lot of other things as well. For example, you know when Rome collapsed or it was collapsing, they had a thing where women were basically hoarding around, and men didn't want to marry because they were like, "All of these women are whores. So why would I marry one? And doesn't that remind you of present times?
0: hmm when stunning parallels like that happen harsh i'm i always think about if we're getting the view of time wrong i wonder if time is linear or if it's cyclical because how is it that certain patterns like this emerge in different generations
1: it's because human nature stays the same and people respond similarly to the same stimulus so, for example, one reason Rome collapsed is that the system worked so well that they were getting really rich and the money was changing Rome. For example, after the Rome, after Rome basically annihilated Carthage, they went from a city-state to an empire. They were defeating all the other cities left and right, taking their women, the people as slaves, and taking all of their stuff and getting really rich. And too much money in a country corrupts the people. It reduces their virtues. It makes them... Soft? S- yeah, it makes them softer, seek more comfort, etc. Reminds like it me of something. Them-
0: what? I was like, it reminds me of something.
1: Yeah, it reminds you of something, doesn't it? <laughs> so, given the same stimulus, given the same... You know, if too much wealth, people went soft... Right. And mm-hmm. that is just a part of human nature. And that's happening again. We have too much wealth in certain countries, and the people are going soft as hell.
0: Right. So I the mean, that's only one thing, thing. That was
1: constant was human nature.
0: Human nature, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things, harsh, that is so noticeable today where people are soft. I mean, they, they're hypersensitive, they don't work as hard. And sometimes I like to study history for that reason. I mean, what exactly causes people to become so sensitive? And I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head where it's when you're having too much pleasures around you, where you create this insulation from real world and your mind is built to solve problems. When it doesn't solve problems, it creates problems and it could turn something small into something big. And those are one of the reasons why people are getting more soft nowadays is because they're not facing any real problems. They're insulated and then they're creating small things into big things.
1: Yes. And also the fact that when you're not used to dealing with
0: real problems,
1: small problems seem big.
0: Right. So... There was this connection that I made. I mean, if you guys are not on my newsletter, be sure to go on armanitalks.com slash newsletter. I wrote this article or email recently called Electricity. And I talked about the similarities between electricity and humans. You could use electricity, a lot of it to extract models that apply to emotions. And basic electrical engineers, they understand the difference between a conductor and an insulator. A conductor allows for the movement of electrons. Moving electrons equals electricity. And insulators, it's not easy as easy to move electrons, which prevents you from getting shocked. What happens is the strong insulator allows the conductor to uh, have the electrons flow. All the electrons need to flow in one direction for electricity to be generated. Without it all flowing in one direction all the electrons are moving around aimlessly i don't know if you see the parallel but this is so similar to humans where number 1 their insulator aka thick skin is so weak and their conductor uh, their electrons are flowing around aimlessly and their electrons are thoughts rather than it being pointed towards one direction aka a vision so they can generate electricity aka enthusiasm they're over here just hopping from thought to thought to thought, creating problems for themselves. So I mean, I mean, I break down the whole concept of electricity in more detail in the article, but I'm basically trying to say that, number one, people need to thicken their insulator, work on building a thick skin. And the best way to work on building a thick skin is to work on some sort of vision. If you just sit on your butt and you have no vision and you're like, I'm going to toughen my skin today, That's difficult because the way that you toughen your skin is by feeling competent by solving problems. If you're just sitting in your butt trying to toughen up, I mean, you could do it, but that's a slow-ass process. Rather, keep trying to build something. It could be your body, business, relationship, something. And from there, your thoughts start to have a theme to it. It's no longer aimless. It's pointing in a direction. And when you have a thought, a mind... Filled with direction. Thick skin is a byproduct of that. So, I mean, that is a big, big epidemic, Harsh, where it's easy to look at the physical side of things, like how weak people look. But mentality-wise, you have to be strong. Otherwise, everything around you just is 10 times tougher.
1: I partially agree with what you say.
0: Okay, so which part do you agree with and which part do you not agree with?
1: I agree with the fact that you need to have thick skin and that having a vision helps with that. But I also know a lot of people who are very competent but who have really thin skins and they let other people's opinions affect them a lot. And a lot of these people are really successful. But you can manipulate them easily because of how much they crave Praise and
2: adoration and approval.
0: Mm. And why do you think that is?
1: I think having thick skin comes down to understanding your motivations and dealing with your insecurities. For example, if you discover that you Notice in yourself that you do a lot of things to get praise. You like being praised. You need to figure out how to fix that because no matter how successful or how competent or how focused you become, that tendency is going to bite you in the ass. It's still going to be around. You can be really successful, but still be like a praise junkie. So you need to fix these insecurities, and that will help you stop caring
2: about other people's opinions.
0: The motivations absolutely matter because you're right about that, where if your intent is wrong, then you could technically do the right activity where you're, let's say you're volunteering or you're giving a homeless person money and then you're taking a picture of yourself giving money to a homeless guy, where that's sort of is like, okay, well, are you doing this, to actually give the money or are you doing it for praise so i do agree with you there no where i don't I... mean
1: that in that overt sense i mean in this whole subconscious sense that you don't even realize
0: yeah but my perception of a vision is that it needs to be bigger than you where if you're doing it for praise you're not necessarily working on a vision no these think people what don't
1: realize it they don't know it
0: like, or something they that they're real... accidentally doing.
1: you know they don't realize that they're doing it for the praise. Like, you know how a lot of guys... Let, let me give you a very basic example. You know some guys will actually do cho- chores in the kitchen because they want praise from their wife.
0: This is like, about to make me laugh because um, I just saw a meme on this recently. So, we'll continue. So
1: some guys will like wash the dishes and... They'll act like they're all modern and they're you know, super helpful and all the other guys are like super patriarchal and the, I am so modern because I'm doing all the dishes and helping the woman. And the, what they don't realize is that they're essentially a slave to female praise. Like they're doing this because they want the woman to praise them.
0: Now, how do you evaluate yourself if you're falling in that trap? Do you ever say like, hey, uh, Harsh, uh, h- how do I know that I'm not falling in this trap right now? How do you build that self-awareness?
1: That's a tricky question. I would say the, a good starting point is, if I do this and no one ever finds out, like no one will ever know or have any idea that I was the one who did this, would I still do it? And I will give you an example, okay? After I read the book on climbing Mount Everest, I thought, huh, maybe I should climb Mount Everest. But then I thought to myself, okay, would I still want to climb this mountain if I'd never, if no one ever found out that I did it? So if I didn't have it as, you know, a a badge or as like, you know, what do you call it?
2: A badge of honor.
1: No, not a badge. Of, yeah, kind of a badge of honor, but also like something you throw around to be like all cool and I'm the best. You guys are all idiots. Type of stuff like a bragging ride.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, would I still want to climb Mount Everest if I could never ever tell anyone ever and no one would ever find out that I climbed Mount Everest? And the answer is no. So, the reason I want to climb Mount Everest <laughs> is because I want the fame and attention and whatever it might bring me.
0: And it happens you so subtly too.
1: Yeah so now now ask this guy who's washing the dishes would you wash the dishes if your wife never knew that you were the one washing them if she just felt you hired someone to do the washing for her would you still wash the dishes and these guys will like if they're being honest they would say no like they're doing it because they want the attention and the praise or you know to feel like they're modern or whatever
0: Right. Well, that's also a big part. If your, I would say, if your job relies on public perception, where I've read a lot of autobiographies recently, and I realized that a lot of these CEO positions, I mean, they're often glamorized, but a lot of it, I mean, if you think about it, is gossiping and ass kissing. If you look at the fundamentals of it, where I have to obviously detail this out, but a large part of being a CEO is connecting with others, yes. But the deeper part is that you often have to go to these networking events and gossip with people where at first glance it looks like this powerful position. But the deeper that you get in, you're starting to realize, hmm, I mean, not all CEOs are the same. Some of them are different. Some of them I don't I don't trust their intentions. And I'll give you an example where there's a lot of these reaction Commentary channels on YouTube, where a lot of them create this narrative like, I'm creating good in the world. I'm exposing the world to scam artists and fake gurus. I'm doing this. And their audience are like, Yeah, yeah, you're over here exposing them. You're going for the bigger purpose. But what a lot of them are doing is seeing that the niche of fake gurus are hot right now and they're predominantly doing for more views. Now, granted, are they helping other people not get scammed? Along the way, sure. But I think a l- lot of these people's core motives is to get more views. No, and of course, eventually... see,
1: that's fine. Never mind. that's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. This is not what I'm talking about when I say not having thick skin. Like, these guys are just doing business and this is a form of advertising or branding, you could say. This is completely legit. What I mean to say is, let me give you an example, okay? You know how someone would do something just... To get praise, like they don't care about views or any. They don't. They don't want to achieve anything here. They're doing it because they like being admired. They like being praised. They like being thought of as. They like being thought of in a particular way. So that's why they're doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who have thin skin are essentially people who are doing what they're doing or do what they do because they want to be thought of in a particular way. They want people to like them or think they're cool or whatever else. And they have no business motive or anything. They're just doing it not as a strategy, but as like an ego gratification.
0: But but wait, wait, wait. The guy that's cleaning the plates, wouldn't you say that... You know how like these guys that are doing the fake guru videos are doing it for more views for a business reason? Would you say that the guy that's cleaning the plates is doing it for more sex maybe his wife is like oh wow you did the dishes oh you're so thoughtful let me let's hook up do you think he's doing it for relationship reasons
1: all i can say is that i don't think these guys who are cleaning the dishes are having that much sex
0: <laughs> no but that's besides the point do you think that's their motive though they're thinking like okay well let me do At the dishes some so level, yes Okay.
1: But if that was just like if that was their only motive, then they wouldn't tell anyone outside their house about it.
0: Do they tell people outside their house? Yeah, if they do. That's like pretty damn embarrassing. It, right?
1: Like I help, I do the I help with the chores. I'm like not like a barbarian, like you guys. And but like, harsh, yeah,
0: what what you're saying? I mean, I would say most people like they're not just doing it for admiration; they're doing it for admiration and an end game in mind so that was one example with the guy like he's most likely not just doing it so his wife is like oh my hero he wants to get laid at the end of the night he probably hasn't gotten laid in weeks now another example
1: motivations but what i mean to say is that if the praise factor wasn't involved would you still do
0: it right i'm trying to think i mean this is a deep question where there's plenty of people in their lives where they're like, no, I mean, I do this strictly for love. I mean, whether people knew about it or not, I don't give a damn. But these same people in another facet of their life do have something where they're like, yeah, I mean, I would like some praise on that.
2: Yeah, but I'm trying to see if
0: there's would like
1: uh, praise. What I mean to say is that if the praise wasn't there at all, like if 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 it was a completely anonymous activity, would you still do it? So what I'm trying to get at is that are you affected by other people's opinions or not? Because that's what having thick skin comes down to. Because that's by definition. Like if you're affected by other people's opinions. Well, you don't have thick skin by definition because you are being affected by other people's words, thoughts, opinions. So one way you can gauge that is how many things you are doing currently you would not do. If no one knew that you were responsible for those things.
0: Mm. I'm thinking about this because I mean then. Okay, let me ask you the question. Well, for
1: example, if you go to the gym, right? If no one could see your body, would you still lift heavy?
0: Right. So my answer is yes for health reasons. Exactly but a lot but less... of people would say no and why do you think they're going to the gym
1: to look good I don't think there's For anything example wrong if with abs, that no one gets like, how many people get, get abs because they like having abs versus how many people get abs because abs look good to women and I know there's a motive of getting sex involved here but
0: right. if as, the, as, go ahead As a former abs holder myself, um, you're right about this, actually. I mean, one of the big reasons I wanted to get abs was, number one, it was a bet. So I wanted to prove that I could win against this other guy who was like, oh, well, you can't get abs. But yeah, I mean, I I would say you're right to a certain extent. I mean, a big part of getting abs is getting that, I would say for me personally, it was actually number one for me. And you may not believe it and be like, yeah, okay. But for me, number one, it was for me because most people that are brown, it's difficult as hell to get abs. Where my black friends, they eat cereal all day and they're shredded. Where like internally, I'm like, man, can I do this? And when I did it, I was like, awesome. And now it's like there were women that were like, oh wow, like he has abs, like this is amazing. But yeah, so to answer your question, I would say for me, it was myself first, and the praise second.
1: I see. So what I mean to say is that thick skin, if at the end of the day, comes down to how little you care about other people's thoughts and opinions. And, so
0: here's what happened. Okay, here's or what how happened. how little
1: so, it affects you. Like you might me, care about it as a politician or as a businessman, but if it affects your emotions, then you let have thick skin. And you can, I'll just continue my process and I'll, and I'll let you speak, sorry. Go ahead. So yeah, you could have, You could be really capable, really focused, have a great vision and still be thin-skinned because they are completely separate things. Like There are lots of people who are dead broke, they're complete idiots, they have zero ambition but they're really thick-skinned. They don't give a shit what you think of them. So I would say these are kind of independent metrics but go ahead.
0: So... Here's what happened. Like after I got the six pack, what happened was this was a highly polarizing moment in my life where girls were nonstop jumping in my DMs. But there were some guys who were making these slick remarks, like, Oh my god, we're so small right now. Oh wow. Like, uh you did you stop lifting? And granted, like I I know exactly your thought process. You're like, Well, yeah, you had your shirt on, why'd you got your abs? It was something I did for myself. But when I saw these guys who are virtually my size talking like that about me, I'm not going to lie. I was what, like 22, 23, and I was thin-skinned uh, with that. And I was just like, man, who the hell are you? And I reacted. So here's my thing with thick skin and thin skin, where I get your process in regards to that, where you're like, vision doesn't necessarily mean that you will be thick-skinned or not. My thing is, It helps. Where how, if you want to assess how easy it is for you to have thick skin, you want to ask yourself the question, how easy is it for me to take the high road where you're the bigger man? You ever heard of that phrase, like taking the high road?
1: Yeah, but I've always thought of it as being the sucker.
0: Being the sucker? Okay, Well, let's say, well, you said you took the high road recently where you kind of had to on Instagram where let's say people leave mean comments on your wall and you respond back, you normally get a strike for that, right? So yeah, now it wasn't you, you have to
1: the take that high road. road. I would not call it the high road. I just need to block them without responding. Do you block them? Like taking the high road from what I understand is doing stuff like if your wife cheats on you, but you forgive her.
0: No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what I mean. That's a straight up cuck. But high road, what I mean is You have the ability to clap back at someone, but you're like, nah, I got other stuff going for me. So let's say on Facebook, someone is trying to debate you. They're writing block paragraphs. You're like, I could do this, but I got other stuff on my plate. And you just completely ignore it. And you start working on something else. Where in 2013, I was over here debating with people on sports and a bunch of this garbage on Facebook. That's because I didn't have much else going on for me. Nowadays, the mere thought of debating someone online for two plus hours is laughable to me because I'm working on something. So if you have something to work on, it's easier to to be thick skinned. It's like you go into the gym, just going to the gym by itself doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be in great shape. Like can you like I know a lot of these bulky guys, they'll run like one mile, and they're tired. Uh, they're always huffing and puffing. There's other elements that go on, but you lifting weights is going to improve your likelihood of being in shape. It's the same thing with reading books. Like you just reading books is not necessarily going to make you smart, but it's going to help you out if you're complementing it with other stuff. That's I what I mean with there. the vision.
1: Definitely helps.
0: I will only say that
1: a lot of people who are very focused are very focused because they are thin-skinned. Hmm. They want the praise and being focused helps them achieve the
2: stuff that gets the praise. I'm
0: thinking about that real quick. So you're saying most people that are working on some sort of vision no, are I'm not thin-skinned saying most or people were...
1: Are. No,
2: no, no. I'm mm-hmm. not saying most people are. What I'm saying is that they are independent metrics.
0: Okay, so you're saying vision and thick skin are not connected?
2: Not that connected,
1: yes.
0: Okay. So, what is your formula for thick skin?
1: There is no formula.
0: So, I believe it could be codified. So, three steps or three different paths for thick skin in my eyes is number one, to do activities that somewhat embarrass you or make it difficult. Uh, Let's say you hate public speaking, you learn public speaking. Over time, this is going to help you in some ways to control yourself. Number two is to do nothing. If someone, whatever, leaves a mean comment on your wall, you're tempted to respond back, but you do nothing. And the third one, I think this is the most potent, is to master comedy. If you could master comedy, thick skin is a byproduct. I just want to make sure we have the same definition of thick skin. Like, what is your definition? To not let
1: other people's thoughts and words and actions affect your feelings.
0: Okay, I mean, it's similar to mine. My definition is internal world is stronger than external world. And virtually, it's similar definitions.
1: I agree with your three-step plan, though.
0: I, I would not say it's a I would formula. say it's a plan. No, I wouldn't say it's a plan. I would say these are different paths you can take. And I'm going to link my video for Thick Skin in the description box. Go ahead. I
1: definitely agree with the first one, where you expose yourself to things you're uncomfortable with. It teaches you how little other people care about you. So it doesn't make any sense to care about them. There's a good book I highly recommend reading. It's called The 4-Hour Workweek. And I read it when I was, I don't remember, 16 years old or 15 years old. The thing with this book is that I don't remember anything in the book except that it had these sections called comfort challenges. So it had these challenges you were supposed to do and the challenges were things like make eye contact with everyone you meet for like two days, etc. And a lot of that really made me thick-skinned because it made me realize that you can do whatever you want. People don't care about you at all. Like There was a challenge where you were supposed to lie down on the footpath for like 10 seconds. And lying down on a footpath is not illegal. You could do it at any time you want. The only thing is that it's, since it's so out of norm, people are too embarrassed to do it. And that's where thick skin comes in. Because... The fact that you're embarrassed shows that you care about these people's opinions. So I, I did that challenge like three or four times. And I think that I am a better person because of it.
0: <laughs> I just pictured you lying on the, on the ground. What, yeah. what were people's reactions?
1: People just blankly stare at you and then just go about their day. Nothing changes.
0: No one pulled out a camera and started recording you. No. Interesting. Uh, hmm. There is another account on Twitter who told me he did the same exact thing, and he said there was one person who pulled out a camera, but other than that, people just went about their days. So yeah, I mean that's a that's a what what'd you say it was called again? Comfort challenges. Yeah, comfort challenges. Comfort challenges.
1: In fact, this challenge—it had a challenge where you were supposed to approach a girl and ask for their phone number, and that's how I did my first cold approach. Right. Yeah, I was super young back then. First ever one. Fifteen. Yeah.
0: A couple of episodes ago, we were talking about the whole working in fast food industry, mm-hmm. and I said that this was a, a pretty low quality job in terms of esteem and respect. I think that's a great place to build thick skin. When people are face-to-face talking to you reckless at times and you have no option but to remain composed, I would say that was a good time for me to build thick skin. And just for a little bit of clarity, I wouldn't say, oh, well, I'm this guy with thick skin. I would say there's always like me building thick skin. I don't think it's a fixed state. I think you're always being introduced to new experiences and you adjust. Who knows? I mean, maybe the most thick-skinned person that you consider has certain things in their life where you, you bring out the thin skin in them. So,
1: yeah, like I, you know, calling them a cock.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's why he snapped like that. He actually Will Smith is very much indicative of what you're bringing up in doing something for praise, where he brings it up, where he says. One of the main reasons, there was this one story he was saying where he was getting box office hit after box office hit. He had like 10 blockbuster movies and he was getting, he he felt as though him becoming this movie star was going to make him more loved by his peers and his family. So, this is one of the guys where he blatantly states in the book he was predominantly doing it for praise. It's one of those things, Harsh, that it feels good while you're doing it. But you'll see that anytime you make opinions of other people, like your driving force, it I mean, it's a painful thing, man, because it's so windy. It's like you're going to drive a car based off of where the wind is blowing. It's just fickle.
1: It's one of the most important things for someone who wants to live a great life to understand what he's insecure about and his motivations for doing certain things otherwise that, you end up being a slave without realizing that, it
0: that's a big thing like knowing what you're sensitive about i mean you don't have to articulate it out loud but if you're somewhat aware i mean that's a that's a big thing there was this kid in my class whose name was darwin And he was this Cuban kid, but he looked black. I thought he was Jamaican. And on the last day of class, I recall, you know, I was feeling like a jokester and I kept making fun of him. I was like, and I wasn't being mean by any means. I was just joking around. I was like, you're not Cuban, you're Jamaican. And I'm over here just making jokes for the rest of the class. And suddenly he just turns around, he looks me dead in the eyes, and he's like, fuck you, Arman. And then he got up and left. And later on, I found out that most people that he was close to didn't believe that he was Spanish either. And since I was over here making fun of him about that, it got under his skin. So that's something that caused him to react in such a strong way. And we never know like what we have like that with us. Do you think you have something like that? Like You don't have to say it out loud, but sensitive spot?
1: Mm, Probably. I don't know. I don't think so. You don't think so? No. I mean, I'm in a profession where I get insults hurled at me every day. So I've kind of, you know, you don't care about it anymore. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I'm doing retail on, retail on steroids sometimes. <laughs> Especially with social media.
0: Yeah, no, social media is definitely a different beast. Where I would say the face-to-face one, in my opinion, was tougher. Because these people, like, you could see the fucking hate in their eyes sometimes. Where this older lady one time was seething with anger because I didn't uh, toast her bread enough. And she was just talking down on me, man. And I just saw the the rage in her eyes. And I'm like, damn, lady, all this over some bread? And you just have to take it. But you feel, like you physically feel your body getting warmer. Like you're getting this rage, but you can't do anything back to them. And in that moment where you don't react, you're like, all right, I'm sorry about that. I'll get you another bread. Is that moment where thick skin is being exercised. It's very similar to the gym. Like you don't go to the gym and just say, I'm going to lift weights that I'm comfortable with. You do something called progressive overload. And it's the same thing with your internal world.
1: Yes. There is one, th- one thing I that... I would g- say that retail, the, wo- the way you describe it, is a little like training yourself to be a slave, where you are not holding yourself back or acting how you want out of free choice but you're doing it because you have no choice It is one thing for a man to not the the whole thing about having thick skin is not about doing or not doing something back it's about not letting it affect your emotions So if it affects your emotions, if it's making you warmer, then you don't have thick skin. You just lack the ability to retaliate. If you were, say, powerful, if you were a dictator and you were in the same position, you would have this lady's head cut off.
0: Mm -hmm. But I do think to build thick skin... You need to be in those certain positions. It
1: it 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 is one way. It is not. I would not say it's the ideal way. And I would say like would be to figure out what you are insecure about. It would it would be an active process of getting out of your own head, because praise is one thing, but a lot of people are also controlled by other things. For example, some people are extremely greedy. They do anything for money.
0: But there's that certain is- times you you don't fully know where like certain times you behave in a certain way where you're like, man, I didn't even know like that's something that pissed me off. And then boom, you, you feel your body feeling a certain way. And then if you don't do anything, these are, in my opinion, great moments to build a skin where you're talking about the king. But if the king got there, I'm sure that the king to get there was put in a lot of positions where his body got warm, but he didn't react. I mean, it's about how well you can uh, coexist with your nervous system. If you're not putting yourself in positions to, you know, at times, I mean, I wouldn't even say be humiliated. I mean, life is going to deal you that. Then you're going to probably not toughen up ever. It's it's ironic, but it's true. Like you got to put yourself in embarrassing and humiliating positions at times to build that thick skin otherwise you never know what can get under your skin where i think you're taking thick skin from a very power attribute where i'm taking it from the exact opposite where you got to go from rags to riches
1: yes I, i agree with you there what i mean to say is that let me give you an example let's say that there's a slave okay i mean a slave in america so a a racial based slave okay this guy's a slave because he was black and he's hurled abuses by his owner he's whipped every few days his wife is raped by the owner his kid is beaten up and there's nothing he can do about it does the slave have thick skin
0: No, no, no. So I wanna say the slave has thick skin, but he's building thick skin.
1: No, we don't know. Like it, it has, we, we have no way of knowing. He might have just gotten used to being abused by this person or this type of person. Or he's just powerless to do anything about it, even though he really hates it. I would say most slaves would fall in the latter category where they don't like it. They don't want to be in this position. They hate it, but there's nothing they can do about it because if they do about it, then they'll be put to death. And I base this on the fact that there were so many slave revolts, like slaves would run away, et cetera. They would take matters in their own hands. So I would not say thick skin, can truly be developed in an environment where you essentially have no choice like it, it definitely helps you know like i'm not saying it doesn't work at all but if you true if you want to, a, a true test of thick skin would be a situation where You had choice. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to how much someone's opinions affect you.
0: Right. But here's what I have to say about that. At a baseline state, whether you're aware of it or not, opinions do affect you. That's just how the mind is wired. Yes. Where back in the days, I mean, if you are like, oh well, I, you know, I don't the care about other people's opinions. Much. Right. If if in our ancient ancestor days, you're like, I don't care about opinions at all. Then guess what? Your tribal your tribe could easily ostracize you, and then what happens is you're there to fend for yourself. So ancient no, please, ancestors. That
1: is a different thing. Okay, you're that has the assumption that. When you don't care about other people's opinions, you are being asshole or somehow being uncivil.
0: No, no, that's, that's not, what not what I'm building what I... up to. No, no. Th- what I'm trying to say is like, at a. so with our ancient ancestors, we had to build that sensitivity towards opinions because our life depended on it during that time. Nowadays, our hardware in many ways is still the same. When humans are naturally giving us that disgusted face, mm-hmm. at a baseline state, you're not like, oh, whatever, I don't give a damn. At a baseline stage, you're like, oh, what the hell? What did I do wrong? Now it's a process of training yourself out of that. But if you're trying to train yourself out of that and you just want to give yourself like a lot of these moments where you're not embarrassed, then it's not going to be an easy journey where the subway thing, I mean, to an outsider, it may be like, oh, well, you know, you're over here getting embarrassed. But in terms of the internal world, embarrassment is pretty much equivalent to lifting a heavy weight. Where if you survive that rep, then next time, it's like, whatever, man. Like, at this job, I'm not going to let another customer's remarks bother me. Where, I'm trying to give you an example that you could relate to. Um, where with you, when you were working with a voice coach, you know, there were tons of people who liked it, and some people, they were like, well, why are you changing your accent for? Her? I mean, this is, not in our culture, and you're like, well, I'm trying to focus on the entire globe. The thing is, you needed those people that reacted in that negative way to show how much of a thick skin that you have. And it's not like you had a choice. It's like, we're doing these episodes. There's always going to be a certain person who leaves a comment or not. You don't have a choice in the matter, but it's how well you still deal with it afterwards. Where with the slave analogy, I kind of see where you're trying to go with that, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's the same way as a fast food analogy, because after the job is done, I still go about my life. While with the slave, this is his life, so he doesn't have like another place that he can go.
1: Hmm, I see what you mean. What I would you say is that at the end of the day, like the way I perceive thick skin to be is how resistant your emotions are to outside opinions of your actions. And that is independent of how focused you are, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: how smart you are, how committed you are, how hardworking you are. And a lot of it getting it comes down to like you said, expanding your comfort zone and also understanding the motives of what why you're doing something. I see your analogy like what you're trying to tell me about the whole being working in retail, but I would say that for most people who work at retail, getting shared by customers affects their emotions, but they can't do anything about it. It's like. like
0: well, nowadays they lash out. I I see so many um, fast food workers yelling back at the customers. I'm yeah, like, because man, they have less
1: discipline or they are less slavish now. Or you know, they have the option to lash out. That's why they're lashing out. But it isn't the case that where previously these workers were not feeling the burn, and now they are.
0: Let me ask you a question. Let's say someone is thick skinned do you still think they have certain parts in their life that they can be very thin skinned about?
1: Yes, that's what the insecurities that's what the insecurities are right mm-hmm. and insecurity is something you are thin skinned about in many ways, for example, there are many people who are very thick skinned about everything okay let's let's take an example of a woman, okay A woman can be very thick skinned about everything, but if you comment on her weight, she'll start crying. Hmm. so there are people have their insecurities like the guy you said who wanted a lot to be i don't know mexican right a cuban cuban but he was from mexico and that might sound silly to us but he, he could be thick-skinned about something else so you can make fun of his hair all you want and he wouldn't care but he really cares about this one thing
0: yes where he he was cuban he looked jamaican but, other than that, I'm telling you, man, he was a stoic guy, so when he just turned around and said, "Fuck you to me out of nowhere," I was like, "Tarwin, really? He barely even spoke, so you're right about that. Where well, for me, man, I mean, I've had a few things that get under my skin. One thing that gets under my skin a lot is i'm I'll easily give other people praise if they deserve the praise where A lot of times, you know, I gave you praise in our past episodes where I'm like, yo, Harsh, you're really good at, you know, boosting up other accounts. Not too many big accounts do what you do consistently. Right? I gave you that praise. Mm -hmm. Where what I don't like is when people take praise and they over amplify it. Where I'm not going to say the account's name, but, you know, routinely, he's just like, oh, I got Armani Talks uh, big. I mean, trust me, he's the reason why or I'm the reason why he's big. And he gave me one shout out ever. And now every time he just like, uh, can I get a testimonial? Can I I'm like, bro, man, fall back. It's like one thing that gets under my skin is when <laughs> someone tries to take credit for my work. Where I don't really care if you talk about other stuff, but it's like there's another kid that I know where, you know, I'm over here thinking, like, yo, man, I have a lot of these books, and you know what'll be really dope? If I get my most popular tweets and I put it on a, and then he says bookmark. And I was like, yeah, because I was about to say bookmark and he just finished my sentence. And then I hear he's telling other people that he gave me the bookmark idea. And I'm like, you didn't give me that idea. You finished my fucking sentence for me. Like, what the hell? And that pissed me off because, you know, it's just like, do you drive a lot? out of curiosity?
1: No, I don't drive a lot.
0: Okay. Well, people who drive a lot will understand what I'm saying. Let's say you're waiting on one side to exit the highway for a long time. It's busy. Everyone's getting out of work and you've been waiting. And then suddenly there's a car that comes up last second and cuts you off and gets into the exit. You'll be like, well, what the hell, man? Like, At least ask me. So that's personally for me. Like, That's the thing that gets under my skin when people undermine or take credit for my work. And it is what it is, man. I mean, I'm not going to be like, oh, well, I'm like this perfect guy with like no uh, insecurities at all, whatever. And I wouldn't even say it's an insecurity. It's more so a principle thing where I'm looking to give people credit, but it's like, why would you randomly try to take credit? And what I've noticed is that people who do a lot don't keep rubbing it in where you're not ever saying like, look how many people I give shout outs to. You just do your thing. And then it's like, it's even more honorable when other people are like, oh man, like look at this guy. He's a quality guy versus a low quality guy trying to take a high quality person's work. Where I'm sure you deal with it too, where like you're a big account. I mean, I'm sure routinely people take credit for your stuff.
2: I don't
1: particularly mind when people are inspired by the content. But what does kind of piss me off is when people try to counterfeit it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where someone would make an account like life health money. And then basically reward my tweets and put it there. And a guy did that. So that pisses me off. Like That actually pisses me off. I'm fine with someone being inspired by the concept and trying to start their own blog or something. That's good. Like, I appreciate that. But if you're just going to copy, like counterfeit, and you basically become China Life Math Money, like the Chinese version of Life Mm -hmm. Math Money, that is going to piss me off.
0: Has that happened many times?
1: It's happened many times.
0: Okay, so we're pretty similar in that regards. Your one is a little bit different than mine, but it falls under the same umbrella.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean... You know, it's one thing to be inspired and one thing to just steal. Like rip off.
0: Well, I didn't get it before where I was like, man, what's the big deal? Where, you know, earlier how we were talking about these strange parallels coming up in different parts of the world? Where... I noticed the same exact parallel between the computer industry and the wrestling industry where Vince McMahon was this original thinker, the guy for WWF. And then Ted Turner, who was great in other fields, but he would always copy in WCW. Like he'd see what was working from WWF and he just imitated in WCW. And this made Vince McMahon livid. Like It would really piss him off. And then on the flip side, in the computer industry, Steve Jobs was that pioneer, constantly thinking of new things, new designs. And Microsoft with Bill Gates would copy a lot of the design, and this would piss Steve Jobs off. <laughs> younger younger me...
2: In
1: Steve Jobs' case, didn't he also copy from some other company like Xerox or something? Like I think they copied the mouse and the operating system from, from
0: Xerox. Yes, I, I believe so. Or he... He combined some of the ideas. But with Vince McMahon and Steve Jobs, when they were getting so livid, I'm like, well, who cares, man? It's just an idea. But an idea doesn't just come out of the blue moon. You gotta put in a lot of like work behind the scenes. You gotta do a lot of stuff to make that idea a thing. So nowadays I get the whole perspective, which I didn't get before. And it's also work ethic where work ethic is something that I believe is the language. When people talk about real recognizes real, that quote, it actually means that I know that you have work ethic in your field as I do in mine. And when I see someone with less work ethic, masquerading as this person with like high work ethic, just showing up in the finish line, taking credit, something about it doesn't feel right. But I'm realistic enough to understand that it doesn't only happen with me. It happens with people in multiple industries.
1: I think that there are a lot of people who want the results but they don't want to put in the work and that's just going to be around forever. The only thing is that systems are getting much much better at actually being able to tell who is real and who is not. For example, the people who make copycat versions of Life Math Money and Armani Talks will not be as successful as us.
2: Right.
0: What do but you go ahead? Go ahead. Well what do you uh, factor in with work ethic? Do you think it's something that you rely on or do you do you say you're more someone that's like, eh, work ethic's overrated.
1: I think it's very important. I don't think it's overrated at all.
0: Okay. No, because I do hear different philosophies nowadays where people are like, oh, work ethic's overrated. What you need more is like intelligence and be lazy so you could be more creative in creating solutions for yourself. Do both. Did you always have work ethic or is this something that you learned later in life?
1: I always had it since the beginning.
0: Do you think anything shaped that? Oh, it's a part of your DNA. Now, I was going to say, do you think, was there a certain traumatic moment that happened to you or was it always like that? Ever
1: since I was born, I was really focused on, I just liked working hard. So it just came naturally to me. Mm -hmm. I got it for free. I didn't have to like
0: learn it. And you mentioned your your father had to, or had a job that required a lot of work ethic.
2: Right.
1: My father was a farmer. All of my family were farmers earlier.
0: Okay, I don't know about that, but like, was it like back then? Like, you had to work with your hands a lot, or did he also have certain technologies in place for him? Oh no, he was a farm
1: went? worker. He did all the farming by hand, like mm. he would milk cows, etc.
0: Did you ever volunteer? Like, did you work Sorry? with them? Did you ever work oh, with them? No.
1: So after I was born, my dad and my mom moved to the city. Because he wanted a better life for me. So I never had to do any of
0: that. Okay. Did you ever go back to the farm and see what it was like?
1: I never worked in the farm, no.
0: Every now and then, I would say the last time I was in Bangladesh was 2010. Or maybe, yeah, yeah, 2010 was the last time. And we went to Chittagong. Uh, the village area mm-hmm. and it was so peaceful, man. I really enjoyed my time there because when you're in the U S there are certain parts I hear that have that similar vibe as in Chittagong, but I've never visited there. But when I went to Chittagong, it's like everyone knew each other and they looked at me and they were like, Oh my God, like who is this gargantuan dude with a watch? Because, because <laughs> everyone there was shirtless and, I don't know if I'm talking about Chitagang or Noakhali, but it, it was the village, and I know that part for sure. And we just spent time with them, where they were fishing. And when they fished, they all jumped into like this pond. They Had this huge net where one person stood on one side of the net, the other person stood on the other side, and they basically pulled the net and caught so many fish. And I was over here watching this. I saw like the bed, which was. A lot of it was made out of rock. And uh, it was just a different life, man. And it fascinated me. So that's why I was wondering, like, did you ever go back to the farm area and see the rural size of things? Sort of,
1: but not like that. I experienced what you experienced when I was trekking a lot. Like when you, you were would what? End up Yeah, in my trekking experiences. So you kind of like end up at a village and you live with the villagers for a while.
0: And just for the audience, trekking means hiking, right? Hiking, yeah. Okay.
1: So it's actually very interesting because people from the city, like people like us, we really value time, right? One thing that would really piss me off is someone wasting my time. And I'm always super careful to not waste any time to get the most amount of work done in the least amount of time possible and things like that so i really care about being productive in these places in these villages the people don't care about productivity at all like they just live leisurely lives they spend their days doing what they do say fishing or relaxing taking showers or whatever you know like they live very slow lives And 10, 20 years pass by and they're exactly where they were. And that is something I can do like for a week (laughs) or like two, three days. (laughs) And then I get really bored of it.
0: (laughs) Right, right, right. This is more so for visiting and unwinding.
1: Yeah, I can't live like like that. I can't live like
0: that. I was looking at some of the people there and they were shredded. What's your workout plan, man? And not only shredded, but they were big, muscular guys. And pretty much in their day, they're lifting a lot of things. So it just shows you the different ways you could get in shape. But my experience in the village, I mean, I cherish that. Especially because, I mean, I go in there dressed like a straight-up American. I'm wearing sneakers. I'm wearing this nice Armani Exchange shirt, watch. And as I'm walking in, like there were just tons of people looking at me and one guy literally grabs my hand and starts analyzing my watch. And I'm like, "Hello there, buddy. I mean, I'm here. Just touching me." <laughs> it seems like from your YouTube videos though, you still go to areas like this.
1: Yeah, I go to areas like this all the time. But people are usually chill. They're not like surprised by a watch in India here. India isn't poor anymore.
0: But what and, about the village? Uh, not just the regular size of India. I'm talking about the village area.
1: Yeah, I'm talking about the village area too. Okay. They all have well, internet on their phones. So they're pretty used to, you know, advanced stuff.
0: Right. So this was in 2010. So how much has time changed since this was 12 years ago?
1: Damn, 2012 is that long ago. Or
0: 2000. 2000- 10? Yeah, 10 10
1: yeah. yeah that's a long time
0: do you you don't have to go it too detailed in case this may dox you but do you ever travel internationally have you ever been to the US
1: no comments
0: okay um a lot of us at this stage I mean for for Indian people like that have never been to the u.s Like, What's your guys' perception of the US? Is it Mm. ultimately positive or ultimately negative?
1: The general perception of the US is that it's more technologically advanced, but the family structure there is also broken. So you end up being lonely and alone for a long part of your life, but you get paid well for it. Like, to put it in simple words, it's iPhones and isolation.
0: <laughs> Which episode was it? We were talking about living I with your parents. Words, no. Uh-huh.
1: I think we were talking about iPhones and horse with Kyle, right?
0: No, we're talking about living with your parents, and you said how it's a normal thing in India yeah, after it's age 25. In India.
1: Yeah, it's a normal thing in India. In fact, not living with your parents is going to, like, Make people think you're ungrateful
0: or selfish. You ever heard of the YouTube account Tech Lead?
1: Oh, he's a Chinese guy, right? Right. I heard about it from this other account called CoffeeZilla, mm-hmm. where this CoffeeZilla guy was like, this tech lead guy is scamming everyone by selling this token called Million Token or something. So.
0: I don't right. know much so he,
1: about him except that he was scamming someone with selling
0: tokens. So he used to work in Google and he's is very good coder. And he's a multimillionaire as well, I believe. And there was this video that he did where he was talking about how he, he's moving in with his parents. And he was talking about in his culture, how this is completely normal. And he wanted to bring this mindset into the West as well. How later on in your lives... That you should move in with your parents, and because for the most part, in in culture at least, if you're thirty, maybe even twenty five, and you're moving in with your parents later on at that stage, people are perceiving it as like, what went wrong? Like, w- why are you doing that? And with Tech Lead, he wanted to bring that perception. Like, no, this is the right thing to do. This is normal. And in the yeah, comments, think- it, it was mixed.
1: Even in the West, it used to be normal until recently, right?
0: Right, because of the industrial age?
1: Yeah. I don't so know. I think it's tough for all these people who live have to live alone.
0: So with Tech Lead, initially, like even before the whole like the moving in with your parents video, the initial video that went viral is, I believe it's titled, My Wife Left Me. And you should check out that video. That's a It was a surprising video where like, just one day his wife ended up leaving him, and he's talking about how he thought once he got rich, all his problems were going to be solved, and now there was this other problem he was dealing with. It just gives you perspective, Harsh, especially in the YouTube era, where how often do you see a multimillionaire having a divorce in public, and you could just watch and learn from his experiences. Let me see if I could find the name of the video.
1: Is this the guy? I think he's the guy who keeps saying on the, at the end of his video, like, uh, like, "My opinion as a millionaire." Are we talking about the same guy?
0: Maybe I'm, I don't watch his videos too much, but
1: he's a thin he, Chinese guy.
0: Yes, yes, he had two viral videos. It's, it's. I think I I've seen
1: the video you're talking about.
0: Right, like my where he's wife talking left about
1: me domestic violence or something. Right, like his wife hitting him and recording it or something.
0: Oh, I didn't know about all that, but I'm talking about the video where it's titled, My Wife Left Me, and in parentheses, it writes, How Success Destroyed Us. Ah, interesting. And then here's another one, Why My Wife Left Me, and in parentheses, it's How Our Marriage Collapsed. I think that's the one I saw, the second one.
1: All I will say is that it's easy to find a new wife when you have money, and I will leave it at that. <laughs>
0: So maybe this guy I mean like who who um articulates this out loud? I wonder like like for me personally, I'm not like too much into talking about personal life on online because I think there's certain parts that need to be compartmentalized where I see other channels they're talking all about their personal life. I mean, I see a lot of YouTube channels nowadays harsh who are documenting the entire divorce journey. From the legal paperwork to having their mental breakdowns their emotional roller coasters the whole process i do see value in that though especially if someone else is going through a divorce but that's never been what my brand is about do you see value when people get highly personal
1: value in what way
0: like do you see there being a need for this in the marketplace And more specifically, let's say someone starts a YouTube channel documenting their divorce. Do you think that's the smart thing to do?
1: A need for it in the marketplace? Definitely, for two reasons. One, more people need to be aware of the fact that divorce is extremely common and typically men get screwed and women profit from it, even though it might not be your fault at all. Like a woman might cheat on you and then divorce you and you will still have to pay her. So I think more men need to understand the reality of a marriage contract. So there is value there for sure. The other side of the value is that a lot of people nowadays don't have friends. And these YouTubers who are essentially putting their personal life out there are kind of like their surrogate
2: friends.
0: Mm-hmm. This is actually what we were just talking about, how different people consume content differently. Harsh, go on YouTube and just type in my divorce.
1: Arman, I need to actually get some dinner and sleep. It's 1 a.m. here in India.
0: Okay. I'll just link it in our chat. But you'll see a lot of these different videos, which is insane. Um anyways, Harsh, this was a good episode. We're talking about how in at two hours, we're going to end it, and we went up to over three hours. Three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, typically, like we jibe together
1: well, so we end up going double time.
0: Yes. Any final words before we wrap up?
2: No,
1: I just need to get some sleep.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you guys very much for joining Unapologetic Truths. Be sure to drop that like on your way out. And thank you very much for joining us. We'll catch you next episode.
1: Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have some final words. If you want to learn more about crypto, go to teachyourselfcrypto.com. teachyourselfcrypto.com. It's the best crypto course on the internet and it's completely free.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that announcement. I'll drop all the links in the description box. And thank you guys very much for joining us again.
1: Bye-bye.